Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Let's Talk More Movies, the show where we try and talk about movies, but never talk about anything and everything else. I am your host, Michael Breslin. To my left is... John Cole. To my also left... That's John Carpenter. What? <laughs> there we go, first mention, uh, Dan Killen. I think it's the earliest mention we had of <laughs> John Carps. <laughs> it wasn't me, well done, Dan. <laughs> to my right... Dominic Feynman. And also to right... Kiva Sweeney. Yes. Oi. Um, okay, just to bring it up at the very beginning of the podcast, uh, Calm Heron isn't on this episode because earlier in the week there was a car accident in Belfast where six people got badly injured and unfortunately Heron was one of those people. And so his leg was uh, badly injured and he's still in the hospital now. They've said everything's looking positive but he's going to be in there for a long time and he just has a long road ahead of him. Yeah, so I mean, like, we're just obviously wishing them all the best and the speediest of recoveries. And if you want to write on any get well soon messages or something, you cheer the guy up, go for it. I'm sure I'll be delighted. He would be so happy with that. It would aid him on his way. <laughs> That's the saddest start ever. <laughs> I thought that we were trying to do that nice, but still, it, it just it hasn't worked. <laughs> That's a sad thing. <laughs> That's a sad thing. Life's sad sometimes, man. <laughs> Stop, stop laughing then. It's <laughs> <laughs> a pure awkward laugh. That was so sad. <laughs> <laughs> He's dead. <huh? laughs> He's not dead. He's fine. Just to clarify, he's not dead. <laughs> he's up. He's talking. He's grand. But yeah, love you, calm. All the best. Get well soon. Love you. I love you too. I love you more. <laughs> if you're listening. <laughs> Danger battle. I'm uh, I'm gonna read across my lap. This is your oh, favorite part of the podcast, yes. <laughs> and it's my favorite part now. It's <laughs> two danger balls this week, so I'll go first. I got this from Tesco. It's five pound on the dot. Oh. And the reason I got it is because first of all, it's massive, and second of all, it's quite festive. It is. You seem very excited about it. Because I've seen it weeks ago. <laughs> 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 I've seen it weeks ago. I'm dying. It is. Gluein. <laughs> what the fuck is that? Right, Gluein. It's spelled G L U H W E I N. So it's obviously made in Ireland, and it a, is we, only it has a wee umlaut over the thing. It's only nine percent, okay, but it's, it's m- obviously made in Ireland. It's like an umlaut over the U. It's obviously German. <laughs> That's the joke. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, Dan. Come on, guy. Keep it for as well. Dan, you're better now. I just thought it was hilarious because I seen the writing. Oh, <laughs> Probably the most German fucking phrase of all time. It's Blue like a, right, that's the it's even a German font. Right, it's a liter. 
Okay, you know that uh, classic German font <laughs> that everybody knows and recognises. You can download it for free. <laughs> uh, it's, it's only nine percent, but there's a liter of it, and it's mulled wine. Uh, I thought oh. running up to Christmas, we may as well have a go. It says serve warm. Fuck it. Or do you want to leave it and serve a warm litter maybe after? It's an just antique. sit on it. I, 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 I just sit. I just sit. <laughs> you know, for it, just leave it sitting out. This this fucking tent heats up pretty quickly. I know. I'm I'm still wearing me wearing my winter clothes. Does anybody want a wee a wee, a wee cold sup? We wet one. Fuck it. Yeah, yeah, it Jesus Christ. He gives a fuck. We're not fancy here. It's an honor of Heron. Like he would do it. There. Yeah. What, what would Heron do? <laughs> It'd be gone, but it's nice. More wine's just really refreshing anyway. Do you not like mulled wine? Uh, well, uh, recently I've been co- I've become more of a wine drinker. Ooh, it's just all the money coming up from this podcast. <laughs> you moved up a class. Are you cutting Buckfest in it? <laughs> I cut yes. Buckfest? I, I class myself as a wine drinker for drinking Buckfest. Sean, your plaster's falling it's, off. Oh no, my plaster. It's nice until the whole mulled wineiness of it breaks in. So oh. it's nice until you just drank it then, essentially. No, like the, you get the initial taste of the wine, but then all the the spice and all bullshit, you know. I see, I like that. That's what makes it even interesting. Uh, oh, actually, we didn't even read that. the description. Tom, I see you chuckling to yourself. Or do you want to read the description? <laughs> right, what does it say? Is that even how we pronounce glue? Glue wine? I think so. Glue, glue wine? wine? Glue wine. I hope there's not glue on it. Glue wine. <laughs> I hope that Divine is. Double trouble? <laughs> A woefully rich yuletide blend of the finest cinnamon, nutmeg, and clove spices with zesty fresh orange notes, providing a Jesus is no punctuation, providing <laughs> a smooth and warming traditional glue wine taste. Yes. <laughs> Definitely glue on it. Warming traditional, perfect for wintertime treats and Christmas celebrations. Serve warm. Do not allow to boil, as this will impair the flavour. It's an aromatised wine-based drink. Oh, it's wine-based again. I keep doing this. Now your limits. <laughs> <laughs> How did you not think it was wine-based? You knew it was mulled wine. I thought it was wine. But no, it was like that lab. Why did you call it wine I got before? Shy, shy a shy pig. pig. And that wasn't wine. That was made of oh, like bread and milk. Mm. Fuck knows what was in that. Like, you know I mean? Shando was It was eggs and milk. <laughs> <laughs> what That's kind of egg? Do you not think as well that Marks and Spencer's are must not drink not employing Dom? You can sell me anything like... <laughs> Are you still contemplating they've been drinking this? It's got to be Christmas tree on It's so nice. That's why I bought the bottle. It's class. Have a okay. go, on. Make me happy. There's a leader in it, like, so you know, take a big look. How do you get through it? Well, here's uh, danger bottle number. Oh. Uh, hey. oh. oh. Do you know what? Wait, yep. hang, hang on. Kiva, how was that? Uh, I know what you mean about the, yeah, the, the mold aftertaste, but yeah. I didn't necessarily think it was bad. But you didn't think it was good? No. <laughs> you like that salted caramel odd gill as week, but you turn your nose at that? No, I do think that's better than yes. the salted caramel. I'll fuck car- away. I'm oh. sorry. <laughs> Bullshit. Right, second danger bottle is Piranha Cola Schnapps, which as we all know is absolutely delicious. It was actually a toss-up <laughs> between Piranha Cola Schnapps and Blue Wayne today. Because oh, really? it's a favourite mm-hmm. thing. Do you get this in Tesco too? No, no. Do you get Tesco with me? Uh, no, I went to uh, drinks ah, on the way home. Okay. Uh, I actually overspent as well because I got all <gasps> I got all week Christmas treats. Wow! Ah, wow! Well, What's they're this? Not, it, they're not really that special, but I thought, why not? We bag of cans. Oh, it's a wee bag of cans. It's gin and tonic in a can. <laughs> it's so good. Wow. It's a gin and tonic. Gin and I've tonic. never had a Gordon's from a can before. Food fancy. Thank, thank you. Beyond before Christmas. <laughs> so here you go. Thanks, Aww. guy. Aww. Aww. Round the applause for Dan. Thank hey. you, Dan. Thanks, buddy. I'm going to spot coffee all myself. <laughs> <laughs> it was worth it, though. It was worth it. 
Ah, oh, thanks very much. And I, do you know what? That I think rocks. it's actually the first bag of cans that has been brought for all the talk. Nah, actually, no. No, there's, nah, there's a bag of cans. Of cans. It's like a, f- a fancy bag of cans. So. Yeah, this is an upmarket bag of cans. It's like a bag of cans from Sainsbury's or something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> bag of cans from M&S. <laughs> Not just any bag of cans. <laughs> <laughs> you can only sleep on yeah, the fancy bridges like the Golden Gate Bridge and all after. <laughs> <laughs> right, uh, I'm going to open this piranha. I've had it before. There's a lot of drinks happening right now. Can I just use that as mixer for my vodka? Because I want a vodka and coke. Uh, <laughs> piranha is like drinking heaven. Can I ask you that, So nice. Mm. It really seems because I'm not drinking as well. I'm just trying to get used into all fucked. <laughs> I'm still very aware of those early podcasts when I was ridiculously steaming. Ooh. So I just want to like move myself further down the road. I know you're a game killer. <laughs> hey, this is our 32nd podcast. Well, mm. my 31st has 32nd. We know how to dance now. <laughs> we know how to last it. It tastes like Frosties. Yeah. Yeah. Sweet. Not the cereal. I was going to say, that's <laughs> right. You just got on there before me. <laughs> has anyone seen those sweets in a while? Hopefully they're banned. I choked on one when I was younger. Color cubes. Yeah, they're like frosty. Frosty sweets. Frosty are oh, amazing. Yeah. Why would you want them banned? Because I choked on one. I choked on spuds. I don't want spuds banned. I think they should ban them. Oh, I choked children on spuds. Everyone's having our family. Everyone's shut down. I'm closed for buzzers. No spuds left. Okay. Famine the sequel. Oh Jesus. <laughs> Jesus. Anyway, sequel ideas. That's one down. I'm writing it now. <laughs> I did always want to go to America. So. <laughs> <laughs> that give us an excuse to immigrate. <laughs> right, Dominic, what did you think of the Colo Cubes? I quite liked it. Nice, isn't it? Mm. Refreshing. I like, I like the, the glue wine because mm-hmm. I've got chocolate with me. And if you have a bit of chocolate and then drink some of that mulled wine, it's really nice. See, he's even doing ingredients for Marks and Sparks now. They do. They put you in here as a mole, haven't they? Put, put albatross on. Let's do this properly. <laughs> <laughs> and how, how was your gin tonic? You necked it in one goal, Standard. Standard gin and tonic. <laughs> That's how I start every day. <laughs> Kiva? Uh, just uh, brought back choking memories. <laughs> <laughs> no, obviously it's class. <laughs> <laughs> obviously it's class going wise up. <laughs> you said choking memories. I thought you meant if you book him when you were 15 the first time you drank it probably. <laughs> uh, me ever throw up alcohol? Wow. <laughs> crazy. <laughs> Just holds it in. <laughs> I feel sick. Got <laughs> <laughs> iron go for now. <laughs> okay, what have we watched this week, folks? Daniel Keelan. Uh, everything I say is always a rewatch. It's never like something I've watched new. But uh, a serious man, the Coen Brothers film. Sweet. And yeah, I mean, I could go on and on about like how well directed it is, and you know, it's still got the same like Coen offbeat humor and great use of music. You can like everything they do does but even just more to open it up even just like a general talk about the Coens uh, a lot of time people say it, they find their movies mean spirited or cold yeah exactly and I think this is the main film I'd focus on and that, that maybe it's not because you know obviously you know there's a big line of Judaism going throughout the film and uh, that's where uh, it's sort of based on, uh, closer on their childhood than any mm. thing that they've actually done before uh, even though it doesn't actually point to like Judaism or religion having like any answers there is like this sort of idea of like you know you have to accept the mystery in life. Yeah. Don't overthink everything. Just try and enjoy it. And uh, I don't know. I think it's a far, I don't know. As a philosopher, it's far harder to pin down. But it's definitely something that they're pointing to. And it's not just all doom and gloom. And yeah. you know you have to just take life as it comes. Even though sometimes it's absolutely shite. Like, so what would you say yourself? I mean, like, do you find the Coens like Coen Brothers films? Obviously, are, are pretty hard to categorize because they're they're sort of genre bent and usually they're sort of 
ticking troops and subverting troops, and they've got their own sort of writing style and that sort of staccato dialogue. Like they take almost like full noir sort of fast talking high trousers dialogue and make it their own and kind of play a joke on it. Uh, but just the di- the diversity of the films they do. Yeah, as well. I mean, mm. like, isn't, isn't this one considered like one of their popular funny ones? Isn't it quite dark? Humor I think it's. It? I think it's probably. I wouldn't say it's not. But it was. It was really well received by critics, and then it got you know pretty good box office and stuff like that. But I think of their comedies. I even think like Unsightly Leon Davis is more well received now because probably because it's got the music thing going with too, and it's got a good soundtrack, so it was in and the spotlight JT. a bit more. And J two, who's excellent, and Oscar Isaac's excellent. I think it's the fact too that a serious man like Michael Stolberg, he's he's still pretty much an unknown actor. So it's kind of hard to market that, and they market a film. Marketing a Coen Brothers film is always going to be tough anyway. Never mind marketing one that's kind of solely about, you know, Judaism or, or their own religion. What's kind of interesting about uh, a serious man though is that what I liked about it is it's about Judaism and obviously nothing else. Where you know brought up Jewish, but it's not ostracizing whatsoever. You know, that doesn't kind of it. It just they still maintain that sort of main theme of of growing up and you know being around your family and then obviously it just has the, the sort of offbeat humor mixed in there that makes it Cohen-esque you would say like. yeah I mean what, what's sorry what's the actual film about oh sorry well yeah I mean it follows uh, this lecturer at a university uh, he studies well sorry he lectures on the mathematics and physics and logic but it shows you like his home life and uh, his wife's leaving him but then you know it seems that all of a sudden like everything that could go wrong in his life really does go wrong and he's got a set of moral questions ahead of him but you know no one's really listened to him and there's this sort of rabbi he wants to talk to who apparently you know holds all the secrets in his head that you know could you know give him the wisdom that he could like you know sort all these problems but obviously no one wants to listen to him he can't get in contact and it's just one thing after another and he's got a brother who lives with him who's just an absolute oaf who can't seem to get his life right at all and his son you know is smoking weed and doesn't pay any attention to him his daughter just wants to wash her hair and go out and you know and his wife's obviously leaving him but yeah it's like it's put upon man and uh there's loads of references made to like the book of job it's like you know how far do you have to push this character until he breaks and yeah i mean it doesn't really there's nothing to say that it doesn't go anywhere because it's just you don't really see where the plot's going a lot of time but it it never gets boring it's exciting all the way through i find it really riveting and there's a great ending to it as well yeah it's 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 a really kind of it's a very, I wouldn't say it's a solo end, but it's definitely like an open end completely because it's uh, I would say it's it's an abstract end. That's the word I'm looking for. It's completely abstract. You really could take so many things from it, and that's why I love about the Coen Brothers films. I mean, it, maybe the Big Lebowski is a wee bit more straightforward in the fact that it's just kind of it's a bit more slacky because the celebration of this great character, the dude, and it's like more like a sort of subversion of the fall noir and stuff like that, and it's it's funnier. Whereas a serious man. There's no really kind of main plotline that runs through it, but it's still so interesting. And because the Coen's writing is so layered, and because their imagery, I mean, like adds to the adds to the dialogue too. You're constantly asking questions of what does that mean? What is their point there? Where are they going with? And I think Serious Man is one of those films where you could you could get ten people and they could all watch it and they could all think something different, completely different about what that film's about. And those films are amazing. And it just shows the power of the writing. Like a lot of people say, oh, well, so you could just write anything open-ended or you could just write anything that you know doesn't really make sense or doesn't join together so that's easy you know just a, a collection of sporadic scenes it's not easy like because mm. there's still a definite structure there and there's still definitely a message that they're trying to get across but you're just not sure what the message is it, it can mean different things to different people supposing you'd understand it more if you understood judaism yeah i think so Is, isn't it i'm not sure if it's true but they don't really have a, a concept of heaven like they do in christianity in judaism I wouldn't know. I heard that, but I'm not sure if it's true. That's one of, one of the reasons why in Islam and Christianity you get pre- preachers and people trying to ev- evang- evangelize and convert. 
but you never know you never actually meet uh, Jewish people trying to convert going out there to convert new yeah well yeah, I mean there is actually you know a line where he sees this rabbi and the rabbi goes on talks about you know well we have to persist we're not promised you know a land of milk and honey is the way that he puts it and you know what obviously the lead character will take some it will, like that influences decisions that are on but just to bring up as well you know uh, to me that film it stands out to me it's my favourite Coen Bars film A Serious Man there's something about the imagery because even though it's set in such a bland area and you know it's a very drab time I would say like the 60s isn't it or like early I think it's 60s. like lit time not the lit 60s, 60s it seems to be yeah. and uh, you know with that I had paired sort of with Barton Fink even the sort of the tone of it I mean both are very bleak obviously well captured films but I mean there's always this humour that only the Coen Bars do like I don't think any of those films obviously it's wrote by them but you couldn't have an odd directoral team work yeah. on those films and you know make them what they are and I think that uh, Barton Fink's definitely the, the best uh, comparison to A Serious Man definitely in terms of narrative because that's very open as well and you can take so much of that that is about like I, I don't know if you've seen Barton Fink but it's about a writer in the 1940s he's, he considers himself a very serious theatre writer mm-hmm. and then he's kind of running out of money and running out of ideas so he gets employed by a Hollywood studio to write this piece of shit wrestling film and he thinks he's above it but then when he actually goes to write it he can't write anything and he's stuck in this really seedy piece of shit hotel and uh, in the next room name's John Goodman yeah, he's, yeah. he's a bit of a strange character and you kind of find it later on that he's not what he seems but I'll not spoil that for anybody but even though it's a guy sitting in his room it's touching on all these things about being complete or becoming the man that you're supposed to be or these deep dark urges that even the kind of most normal people would have you know what I mean and that's what kind of implies through Burton Fink again I won't spoil how that's presented on the film but any other writer and it's just testament to how powerful or how good the, the Coen Bros are screenwriters could write about a man sitting in a room and you'd be fucking bored stuff after two minutes you know what I mean but most of that film fair enough he's not in the room all the time but it's essentially about a man we writers block yeah. and they make it so interesting so you obviously the cookie characters they're kind of famous for that surround them they kind of flesh out the narrative but then just the, that underlying thing you're never quite sure what they're trying to get at but you know that they're trying to get at something very deep and it gives you this this feeling inside yourself and I think that the good thing about a serious man and Barton Fink is that you can look at those films in so many different ways and take someone from it at different periods in your life you know what I mean first time I watched Barton Fink maybe I didn't really get it but I just like the imagery but then as it matured a wee bit I kind of seen you know the, the, the themes that I was talking about and I guarantee if I watched it in 10 years now I would find someone else because of the experiences that I've had and that's a serious talent as a writer like you know I mean they make a film kind of constantly prescient or constantly consistently relevant you know what I mean because it's talking about big themes that never change. It's not talking about like a wee time period in history that it's set on. Yeah, I mean, these films, obviously, you mentioned like they're setting in the place. You know, it obviously matters so much in terms of, you know, how stylized the films are and uh, yeah. how well they're presented because the Coen's are great at capturing that. But yeah, I mean, as you say, like the serious themes are, you know, when you're in this sort of battle against attrition, yeah. it, it certainly stands up once they say, oh, I'm a, I'm a man, I'm a serious man, you know, yeah. as in, yeah, I mean, it's sort of a cry for help more than yeah, anything, I, and, you know, I, that yeah, both films really have that together. They're just really humanist in a way, I mean, it's kind of strange that the Coen brothers are known for, like, offbeat humour and, you know, characters with funny names and good soundtracks and really cool visuals, but then the thing that's never pinpointed about them is the big humanists, like, the, the text that they have in their characters and the kind of themes that, you know, underscore films like A Serious Man and Barton Fink. Even are, The Big Lebowski as well. Even yeah. The Big Lebowski too, exactly, are are excellent and they're, and they're themes that are always going to be here you know what I mean they're, they're themes that every human being is always going to register with very good at exploring abstract ideas involved with the self yeah and nihilism especially I mean nihilism. one thing I have a book in the house the Coen's on Cohen, and it's just like a series of interviews with him and they get questioned about how like the kind of 
female nails on one shoulder fans most yeah. blatantly with the actual nihilists you know, the kind of comedy yeah. characters and the big Lebowski but there is this thing about nihilism that runs through all their films and a kind of rejection of Thith and I think that's why A Serious Man is pretty interesting because obviously they were brought up I think quite stringently in the Jewish Thith right. and I, I, I don't think Eller practices no. now but I don't think Eller practices but they're still grateful of that upbringing and kind of the fact that it gave them the facility to be human beings and you know show kindness and just taught them morals basically but yeah. they don't really practice the actual religion itself yeah, so I got that Aubrey online that I really relate to. It's like, yeah, I don't believe in God at all, but I'm very much a Catholic. Aye. <laughs> so, you know, it, it, it forms my moral compass, and, you know, there's no escaping that part of my personality. I think that maybe a serious man's a bit of an homage to yeah. that way they were raised. Just the same, I mean, it even touches the, like, I suppose, way Scorsese's earlier films were really deeply embedded in, like, the, the Catholic fifth. I, uh, before Scorsese became a filmmaker, he was actually considering being a priest. He was, like, a huge, really kind of deeply deeply catholic man because his family italian americans were obviously very very catholic and even mean streets and to a certain extent taxi driver all deal with sort of catholic guilt and you wouldn't you would not realize that now if you watch Corsese films now because he's become a lot more kind of uh i wouldn't say versatile but he's went on you know different genres and it's song that he's kind of left behind because i think he's, he's come to terms with it. but as a young kind of maybe angry director who was kind of doing about a soul session himself and, and putting his own vision out and his own voice out through film it's very obvious to see that he was kind of struggling with that still you know what I mean like that rejection of his fifth but at the same time he still felt guilt for moving away from his fifth because it kind of made him the person he was actually I know we're getting a bit off topic but there's a really interesting uh, thing I read about Taxi Driver where in all the storyboards like uh, Scorsese was drawing up all these scenes of you know uh, De Niro's character who's you know just he's meant to be like a wretched man you know mm. the sort of person that you know, eventually gets lauded in the movie, but you know, we're meant to look at him as he's a danger to society. But in those and the taxi driver was definitely a dream. You think so? Nah, nah, I, I don't know. Doesn't he yeah, die in the end? Of time? Nah, no, nah, he, he drives off and he's kind of lauded as being this hero for the shootout, but it's definitely a dream. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Oh yeah, but either way, in these storyboards, uh, all the, the character looks like Scorsese in every single one, and it's sort of you know he's projected himself as part of this character. Obviously, a facet that he sees in himself. Yeah, but you know, you would not associate the two well, at all. I don't think it's any coincidence that probably one of the most disgusting characters that mm. you ever see in any film is, and he's only in it for like a minute and a half, is the passenger that Travis Bickle has in the back of his car uh, when he's talking about blowing his wife's fucking vagina off with a magnum, and it's it's Scorsese playing him. And Scorsese hasn't really acted, but Scorsese's playing that character. And during that period, because he was pretty fucked up on drugs, and he was struggling with his fifth and stuff like that too, there's a lot of self-loathing in those earlier films. Definitely, and a lot of self-loving the fact that he's let himself slip so far away from maybe the the sort of Catholic upbringing that he had, and the rejection of that. But at the same time, he tries to he's trying to get away from it, like because he he doesn't believe in it as much anymore because he's you know found all our beliefs or found all our pathways in life. But th- definitely, and then obviously, I think it, it kind of filters away after Raging Bull because he got over his drug addiction, which obviously wasn't helping his mental state, and he kind of leveled out again. But it's still it's an interesting thing. So what do you watch this week, Mickey? Keep it on the whole religious thing. I watched Super. <laughs> hey. With Nathan Fillion as the holy Avenger. Avenger. <laughs> but yeah, uh, Super, Rain Wilson and his wife, Liv Tyler, leaves him for a drug dealer played by Kevin Bacon. So then he decides to be a vigilante hero called the Crimson Bolt. And then Ellen Page, who he meets in a comic book shop, becomes his sidekick called Bolty. Oh, <laughs> Which is yeah. probably the cutest superhero name you ever hear. I've, I've seen <laughs> this. She's yeah. just the cutest superhero. <laughs> Although uh, she does, 
essentially rip Rain Wilson in that film. Yeah, it's pretty Have you not seen this? I haven't seen it. It's really very violent person. She's a pretty much like psychologically unhinged, isn't she? Yeah, you see, that's what I was thinking about this film because I was texting Shannon about it earlier because you don't really like Super, don't you? I think it's alright. Okay, well. I was texting Chad about it earlier in the week and I was saying that I just like Rain Wilson's character is a mentally ill man and he's just trying to comprehend this world that he doesn't understand basically so you could really relate this I really relate to <laughs> Rain Wilson's <character. laughs> no but to, no but that's what I'm saying like I, I understand that character in the film the character I don't understand is Ellen Pages because she's just this kind of she she's this really kind of buzzy kind of teenager but then she really she really she, she really wants to please Rain Wilson's character. Like he comes in asking for comic books, uh, where it's just humans being the superhero. So she's all, all right, yeah, Batman, uh, Iron Man, and then she says, "Oh, Captain America, he just has a shade." She's all, "No, no, no wait, wait, he, he's a super soldier. He's a super soldier. I'm wrong. I'm sorry. I'm sorry." <laughs> like yeah, she, she's got like she, she's definitely on his too. Like I know that's what I'm saying, but I I don't really understand that. Like I I get Rain Wilson's character. I don't understand her character because like then like she invites him to like a party at her like she just moved on to a new place, and then when you're watching, you think, "Oh, he's going to be the only person at this party because she's inviting just a basic stranger to yeah. a party." Like. But then she has all these people and she's like making out with a guy in her room and all like so she has friends and she like she has people they go out with and stuff so why is she hanging out with this like 40 year old man that's being a superhero you know? i think that's one of my problems i think it's just a wee bit of just power writing really because i mean you've got a character here's really good and i think ellen page's character i love the character yeah, she, in it though good, i think it's 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 a kind of it's a standard character but it's elevated because ellen page is kind of really good in the role and she's adorable and you just can't help but like her but yeah. it's just it's your typical kind of what do you call that what do you call that trope again for Pixie like Dream a Pixie Dream, Dream Girl yeah. she's your typical Pixie Dream Girl like she's on the comic books and she's on the manga no, and she's I, really cookie I, I wouldn't say sta- she's Pixie Dream Girl I think it's a stock character but I it's just elevated yeah. they subvert the, it obviously you know no, but but the edge of it is that she just loves a bit of violence as well doesn't she yeah no be- I wouldn't say she's Pixie Dream Girl because she's she's mad about Frank Rain Wilson's character he's not mad about her like he like normally with Pixie Dream Girl like they're just the cookie one and then the guy kind of falls them about and falls in love with them so they're it's different in that way and plus she is psychotic as well yeah. like she's really obsessed with violence and just wants to kill people basically once she actually becomes bolty and stuff I think though it's I think it's just a basic narrative tool that they've done there too because obviously if you just had Rain Wilson's character and he was the focus for most of that film and obviously he's mentally unhinged him on his own wouldn't really work. First of all, he needs somebody to bounce off. He needs yeah. like a body or a sidekick. And then also, because he is kind of seen as being a wee bit maybe withdrawn from society, he needs somebody that he can kind of have emotive moments with and show more of his personality. And I think they kind of get that through. So I think he's yeah. just a, a narrative necessity. Like, I know you're probably right, but like I'm not slagging yeah. off the character. I think she she is amazing as Bolty. Yeah. I can't remember the actual character's name. But... Uh, no, she's she's amazing in that role, and she is just really funny in everything she is at every every scene she's in. And a thing I noticed as well, just watch this, and I said this last week as well, so it makes me sound like a bit of a creep. Ellen, Ellen Page is stunning in this film. She's really beautiful in every fucking You're scene. She's a lesbian, Michael. I know it, it, it doesn't matter. She can still she be beautiful. I'm not saying lesbians can't be attractive. I'm just saying you don't have a chance for her. She's all right. She is about twenty. You're really ugly in the corner here. <laughs> You're beautiful, kid. Thanks. You are definitely attracted to a woman, not a teenage girl. No, I'm not saying in that way. It's it's just uh, like I said about Gwyneth Paltrow last week that I noticed she was attractive in Mordecai, and. Uh, 
I know it's, I'm just being a creep when watching Falcon's Creed. It's sort of like the appeal of the character as well. Yeah. She's like this sort of doe-eyed face, face. That's why it's so interesting when she turns out to be mental. I mean, I think her being attractive adds to the character. Yeah. I don't think it's wrong to mention that. I and like it's, the it's danger. No, I like the danger. <laughs> name on that. But I mean, like, I think it's it's no coincidence as well. They, they fucking, they highly sexualize her in that film. Like, I mean, like I say, she literally rips her in Wilson. Like, so. I always It'll fancied be... her in Juno. Oh, you like yeah. the pregnant like women? Is that your thing, eh? My ex-girlfriend really liked Michael Sarah in that film as well. Is that, uh, is that why you try to get me to dress up as Polly Bleeker? Yeah, because I, I, I was telling you that there are women out there who have a... <laughs> Geek chic. Yeah. Also, one other point about the super. I said last week that the best sort of Edward Norton is Smarmy Norton. Best sort of bacon. Creepy bacon. Creepy <laughs> <laughs> bacon? Uh, uh, can I just say as well, though, that uh, a film like Super, uh, Kick-Ass, obviously Kick-Ass, like, you know, had a huge sort of uh, hype, whatever you call it, hype extravaganza for when it was coming out. And it was sort of marketed as a film of if a normal person was to become a superhero. And then it completely lost that when you actually watch the film because at the very end, you know, he flies about in a jetpack and there's rocket launchers yeah. going up everywhere. Yeah. It's ridiculous. I thought Super was closer to that and I still have problems with the film. I don't think it's like really, really good, but I do think it's better than Kick-Ass. Yeah. I, I, well, I would say they're, they're actually two very different films, mm-hmm. even though they seem similar. But uh, I, if, if you kind of had to ask me, oh, do you want to watch Super? Do you want to watch Kick-Ass? I probably would say Super. I think I'm super as also it's only ninety minutes. Can I put the ninety minute ones when you have a when you have a pack? Long intro, isn't there? Goes on for yeah. ages. The intro day is like really, really long. It does the credits to start and it's like them drawing. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. I d- absolutely. Ages, I like, wouldn't say it's not like Spider Man long, like, but yeah. Actually, films only ten minutes long. <laughs> but, uh, I think super Just has seen that. <laughs> That's all Shan's seen, and I cannot film. Again, and again. <laughs> 47 minutes, still 32 seconds, here we go. I'd actually have timestamp, like, but... Uh, I'm actually going to look it up if that is the actual timestamp. <laughs> that, that is. <laughs> I swear to God, I just came up with it. It's just locked. <laughs> I like my story. Tell that, please. But, uh... That's <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I think Superlow is, is more kind of... That's more focused on, like... A theme like a, a, a more social theme like I mean like about it's definitely trying to say something about mental illness yeah. whereas I think Kick-Ass is just more kind of a glossy kind of deconstruction of superhero yeah. films a thing I really like about Super as well is um, there's just a thing at the end where you, you realise that Ray Wilson just lives by these rules of society and he, that's what gets him angry at society that not everybody pays attention to the rules mm. and then when he has his final showdown with Kevin Bacon he just screams at him like you don't cut in line. Yeah. You don't deal drugs. You don't molest little kids. <laughs> <laughs> the rules were set a long time ago. And it's just, he, you can tell he's actually pouring his heart out in this thing. And it's so ridiculous, but that's what he believes. Like. That's a sort of, like his mental self, that's yeah. how that's how he kind of understands it. We're not like, and that's, 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 why it's... that's why I really relate to <laughs> 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 Mikey hates people in cotton lines. <laughs> Fucking dude. Look, he was just, she looks devastating because she's I know, right? I, it's... <laughs> I, hate I agree. Well. Everyone hates that. Everybody needs to get a fucking wrench in the head. <laughs> <laughs> but like, who, who ever thinks it's okay? No, I can't even get into it. No, I, just like, I, hate, I hate people that stand on the wrong side of the escalator yeah. as well. I hate people who queue for planes, up. even though the plane's not taking off for like an hour. Oh, yeah, I right. hate that. Or, or people that... It's a sign seating! It's a sign seating! <laughs> You're getting your fucking seats while you queue or, stand up for or, a beer. Or, or people that walk past everybody else, do you try and go through the gate? Like, oh, I mucker, none of us tried that. We're all just standing here to be dicks like. <laughs> <laughs> no, but like... I, mm. <laughs> 
so annoying. <laughs> Air vent in the back of an upper. That's a fucking taxi man said to me the night. I think that was the best analogy ever for somebody getting a bolt in the back of your head. Don't yeah. ask me why he was telling me about shooting people in the back of your head, but he was all up on his an air vent in the back of an upper. Is your head a napper because you napped with it? Nap is a Scots word for head. Was he Scottish? No, he was from Bradley Ball. I don't. I never heard napper either, but I just kind of wanted to. You're loaf. You're scone. A lot of the Derry accent has Scots words in it, like Wayne. Wayne. I mind. The day, the year, that's all Scots. Or we. I say like we thing. And I. Or yous. I thought Wayne was like Bane. Bane in Scotland. Is a Wayne, but it's spelled like Wayne. B a i n. It just comes from. It's a short Let's talk more etymology now. Let's talk more linguistics. Yeah, well, we just start reading out the dictionary. We've broken a couple of times. Dominic, what did you watch this week? I saw Black Mass this week. What you think it? Oh, that new Christmas film. Tyler Perry's new Christmas film. Black Mass. That's that soulful one. Yes, that soulful Christmas. <laughs> my day idol's Christmas. No, I have to say, I stole that joke from John Ham. Ah, <laughs> yes, John <laughs> Ham. Funny and lethal looking. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> Everything Sean Coyle wants Everything I should. Well, <laughs> not striving like that. He got a big dick, too. Does he? I does. I've seen them photos. <laughs> No, he's walking up. No, he's. Have you not seen these photos? You've seen. You've seen them photos. Yeah, hey, you showed them to me. Oh, was that you showed them? To me? <laughs> <laughs> I can't remember. I'm drunk as fuck. But uh, he's walking up the street with his missus, and he's like wearing like just trousers, like people do. And he's just wearing clothes, like. But you just seen his big dirty dick just hanging down his leg. You see the imprint of his dick. Man's hung like a fucking animal. Should I'll show you the pictures after? Damn, we're gonna. Can't wait. <laughs> I want to see the dick now. <laughs> yeah, I get up on this tablet, right? You go ahead and I well, get up. Get the dick up. Um, get your dick up. <laughs> John Ham's horror. It was. It was. So uh, just to clarify, Johnny Depp Black Mass. Okay. Johnny Depp Black Mass. <laughs> it was very good. I wouldn't say it was amazing, but it was very good. Yeah. I li- um. Do you want to give a brief description? Well, I'm sure people will be aware of the story. Um, I don't think so. No. Because even today I heard a boy like struggling saying, oh, some whitey boy in America, I've never heard him. James, James Whitey Bulger. Yeah, whitey he Ford, was yeah. the, most, the most wanted man Bulger, on the FBI, FBI list for... <laughs> you call him Whitey Whackers. <laughs> no, that's who his name, that's who his name. After Whitey Ford, I'm sorry, I'm going to add Dominic Drogdy. Yeah, let's call everybody Whitey. Who's Whitey Self-loving white man over here. He's a, he's a baseball player. Yeah. Right, okay. And, and he, got, he got knocked unconscious by a bunch of pretzels one time. In a Simpsons episode. <laughs> <laughs> so basically, in real life, <laughs> I can't believe you're typing John Hamm's penis on this tablet. Yeah, honestly, it's well worth it. Though. Gonna head down, anyway. I can't find it harder. I'm just thinking about John Hamm's penis. Me too. Thirteen. Okay, well, of John right, Hamm. all thirteen. No, just, <laughs> it's kind of right. I, I, I recognize close when he's full beam. <laughs> Look That's at that. this, like. <laughs> Honestly, I think you come on. See, no, now that we're referencing this picture, we're going to have to put it up no, on the Facebook page. We have to. I'd Size of that, like. That's flaccid, like. Oh, so I dress on the right, just like myself. I, 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 I switch up. I just like my fly fly. <laughs> <laughs> There's other, and if you think that's a phony, there are others. That's not real. Right. I wouldn't say shit. Oh, here we go, Dan. What size are you in? <laughs> This melt up when I said that. What? As if I give give you deep no, offense. I was just I was just focusing on it, trying to trying to gauge it. 
He looks. I, he's, def- he's definitely circumcised, though, isn't he? <laughs> <laughs> you see, it looks it looks big, but it doesn't look like there's a lot of girth there. Nah, mm. nah, that's a great. That looks like a bit of Rooney. And he he could he could be like half like up. Oh no, that's no girth. That's a lightsaber. Exactly. Yeah, no that, girth. that's that's John Ham's dick right nah, there. No, that's not. I won't. I will not have this. That's not fair, <laughs> oh. It could be a grower, not a shower. It, it could be a lot more. <laughs> One that come out like if it lit up as well, that would that would be. You right. can get glow in the dark lightsabers, not lightsabers. No, uh, glow in the dark condoms. Oh, oh. Would that not be thing? sort of poisonous? <laughs> <laughs> would that not? How do you turn this off? Talking about black mass. Um, I'm talking about lesbian. I'm white mass. I love this as well. Like, there's like a picture, another picture of it, but then like oh, obviously so cutting edge of journalism. There's like a circle around that's it. That's what up. I guess there. <laughs> Maybe just really love shopping. Serious definition. Right that there, he wears a wee silk trouser to get the definition of it. Anyway, black mass. Go on, That's right, okay, black mass. Maybe he's just a shoplifter. <laughs> oh, he's stealing dollars. Always mumbling. Loves cucumbers. He's got a banana addiction. Anyway, but anyway. <laughs> black mass. Can we put? I uh, pull away because I'm gonna. I can't, I can't stop, stop looking. <laughs> 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 the dick away. I'm about to look at. It doesn't look huge from Is that, that ball sack as well? Yeah, More likely. But see, you can definitely tell he's... I know, but... Did you see Fassbender's in shame? But that, that doesn't... That's class, dude. That's what I'm saying. Fass, Fassbender's bigger than Ham. I just, oh, uh, Fassbender is bigger than Ham. I love to see him have a fucking dick off him. <laughs> sword fight? I love to see him have a sword fight. Like. But how, how is, how is it... As well. How is it so defined in these because trousers? Because he's not wearing then? any fucking boxer shorts, that's why. And then he complains about people going on about his dick leg. I mean, he's just asking for it. Fuck you can see his helmet. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. He, he was probably man. just like walking to the shop. I wouldn't be fucking harsh. put on my pants. Don't you get like a fucking put on these like a cornetto or a fucking yeah. pack of rules or something? I was on that picture. He's got like a baseball cap and sunglasses on, so no one recognizes him. But as soon as you see that, that you know, it's like it's like Clark Kent. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> he just puts a wee pair of glasses on. Oh, that'd be cute. No, wee pair of glasses. No, anyway, <laughs> black mass. Black mass. Black mass. I have to say, I'm quite, I'm quite nervous today for some strange reason. Yeah. First time you're on without s- drugs. <laughs> <laughs> First time back from the space odyssey. Um, Is it my blustering sexuality? I'm looking nervous. <laughs> it's the hairs on the back of your neck. You've got blusters on me fingers. Well. <laughs> <laughs> okay, it's the story about. One of the FBI's most wanted men in their history, James Whitey Bulger, who was just some shabby street hood gangster. I wouldn't, you, you wouldn't even call him a gangster. He's more just like a street thug. Yeah, he was kind of sort of like a, a, a glorified thug come yeah. sort of like south in Boston. In the, the south end of Boston or whatever it's called. And this miraculous rise to power and how, the, how he manages to get away with it during the 70s and 80s. It's got Johnny Depp in there, who I think it's just because they put the contacts in and the eyes just look unreal that he kind of ends up looking like one of those walkers from um, Game of Thrones. <laughs> he does. He's, he's got that sort he's of... He's got like an icy cold stare. Shark eyes he's got. It, it doesn't look, it doesn't look real. The, I, know. I, I did read somewhere that 
the guy did have like yeah. piercing he eyes. He does like, have bright blue eyes in that like a classic Irish sense where you see some people in Ireland with those bright. But there was something that didn't sit quite yeah. right with me with those They're, eyes. They do look his eyes are so dark. Yeah. I think they were probably intentional, just they kind of ram it home with how intimidate they can be. But uh, people but do have eyes like that. I mean, yeah. look at like Elijah Wood and Danny yeah. Radcliffe. They have just stupid blue eyes. Like. The best <laughs> intimidating. They're so uh, stupid. Yeah. No, they're just magical. The best description I've seen of best description I've seen of Johnny Depp's eyes in the film was uh, <laughs> no honestly because something no, about this, it was, so was, it was the you remember when Zemeckis started first dabbling in stop motion and they didn't quite have it right yet and the bodies moved right and stuff like that but the eyes were really uh, dead and hollow. They had cold dead eyes. And they called it <laughs> hollow eye syndrome and they had these really cold dead eyes and they were really creepy looking even though the rest of the animation was sweet. That's kind of how his eyes come off, but certainly it's a good thing because it just adds the character. They well, they do it. They do it for effect because yeah. obviously James Whitey Bulger is a classic psychopath. Yeah. Yeah, you could you could diagnose him as classically psychopathic because he during the film he doesn't seem to show any sort of empathy or fear or doubt about taking other people's lives or yeah. beating the shit out of them if they cross him or offend him in any way yeah, how's uh, how's uh joel edgerton in the film i've heard he gives it a great show yeah that, he's a, he plays Gordo. he plays Gordo. a great character um benedict Cumberbatch. the thing is it's not it's not an amazing gangster film it's a very good gangster film you know you know you i think it might be a wee bit too slow if you're gonna go in there looking for sort of the, if you could compare it to the departed obviously the departed's kind of it's it's a remake of Infernal Affairs, yeah. but the scriptwriter for The Departed has can see the similarities that was going on with the the real life story of James Whitey Bulger, I, I and think used that. Jack Nicholson's character was kind of based off of Frank, yeah, Frankie. Frankie blatantly is, and Matt Damon's basically John Connolly. And see, for me, Black Mask doesn't really know what it wanted to be. You know what I mean? Because I think that it wanted to be more sort of balls of the bath and actually sort of gangster film, but then mm. at the same time, it wanted to be this sort of reflection of how bad crime is and how fucked up these people are you know more akin to Goodfellas or, or, the, or the classic gangster films and it just didn't really get the mix right I think it was slow in parts mm. and then when the violence did come it was a wee bit underwhelming because it's the, it was the sort of setups that you'd seen so many times before I think Depp's if, see if Depp was none of it and his performance his performance is very very good I don't think it's the most outstanding performance I've ever seen but it's a very good performance without him in it and without the transformation with the bald head and the eyes yeah, that we're talking yeah, about yeah. I think it would have been very forgettable I think uh, it, I yeah. think yeah I think he sort of elevates it a bit. They they you know saw him that bigger than some of its parts. I think. Yeah, I th- I'm just trying to think now if they tried to make it him seem more psychopathic, you know, where like a classic psychopath can charm you and you you sort of fall under their spell for a period and then then you kind of realise that you're now trapped in this very dark and sinister cycle, knowing this person. It doesn't really it doesn't really happen. Like there's a few there's a few scenes where he comes across psychopathic, but if they could use sort of the if they could build that up more in the film, maybe. I, I think it's just everything on Black Mass has just been done so many times before. It just comes off as a bit tired. Yeah. It's just it's a buddy a it's a buddy a well beaten road in, in that sense. Like there's nothing really original or nothing that really jumps out at you bar Depp's performance, although there is one scene in it that is like one of my favourite scenes of any film I've seen this year. You'll know what I'm talking about. It's the scene where Depp goes up the stairs and subtly threatens Joel Edgerton's wife. Yes, that's, that is phenomenal. See, that's, creepy. that's 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 probably the only period where you think, oh, actually, how good a psychopath yeah. he is. And I, they could have they could have sort of hinted at that 
more as more as the film went on. If every scene was like that, it would have been and a Stone Cold classic. That really stood out to me. That scene. That was a great performance from her as well. She was excellent. I've never even seen that actress before, but that that was an excellent performance. Oh, I've seen her before, but she usually had short hair and things that I've seen her. Who is it? I can't remember, I can't remember her name, but I've se- I recognise the face. I'll find it out in the book. Very quickly, would you say Johnny Depp is back from this? Did we, well, did we lose like? him? What did we lose him in? Uh, every other film before this. Every film the past 10 years, probably. He's, he's been on a, a slow-burning oh, ship is, for is a while. Is that why they started calling him a cult actor? Yeah, it's, it's more that... Uh, I think he got a letter wrong there. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I don't, he doesn't deserve that. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's I, just I the opportunity was there. I love Johnny Depp. I think he'd I'm be sure they all great. Bought. Great to hang around with. I get the impression that he's a bit mad. No, I no. Don't get me wrong. I absolutely love him. It's just that concern is one of the best actors of his generation. That it's just he hasn't showed that in quite some time because he's just went for the very. He's just went for roles that are knownly quirky and there's no real depth them. You know what I mean? Depth, depth needs depth. You know what I mean? Because he's had like Alice in Wonderland and he's just playing the same sort of caricature, character, and character. So it was just Jack Sparrow. Uh, you know, and the Lone Ranger. But that's and, all uh, ever done, isn't it? Dark Shadow. But I mean, no, but obviously, he, he done Man, he done Benny and June, he done Ed he Wood. He played Pablo Escobar, didn't he? He, he, do, he done Blue, you know, well, he done Blue and he done The Fallen Blue as well. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Ah, yeah, yeah, but that's years and years ago. But that's yeah, Johnson Knight, but you want to recap that. That's like, what, you know what he mean? used to be, like, yeah. and then he started going and did these way cookier things. And, you know, like, the first Pride of Car was good, but you don't have to do four more. And the reason, the reason obviously, they fail is why Jack Sparrow was such a breakout character in Pirates of the Caribbean is because he wasn't the main character and because yeah. he, he doesn't have as much screen time there's a lot more mystique to him and you're like oh jeez I really want to see that character more but then that's always the danger of characters like that when you give them their own franchise that mystique and that sort of newness about them just goes away so you get bored of them mm. the reason that Jack Sparrow was a secondary character in the first Pirates of the Caribbean is because I don't think he's a good enough character to carry a whole film yeah. hence why the preceding Pirates of the Caribbeans have all been subpar like and then they completely changed Keira Knightley's character. But anyway, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Uh, Kiva, what did you watch this week? I watched Parallels. Oh. Um, it was just released this year straight to Netflix, so it's obviously rock. Very good sign. No. <laughs> no, I mean, box office wise, it's not <laughs> nah, a good nah, sign. Nah. Not, not quality wise. Um, so, have you heard of it? Yeah. Uh, it's like a sci fi kind of adventure. Um, like basically there's this building that travels to parallel earths every 36 hours and anyone inside the building gets travels with it basically Mm. um doesn't really explain it any more than that um so these parallel earths are apparently endless so there could be they kind of describe it in the film, like there could be an earth exactly like this one, only with one less mosquito. Mm. That that could be one, or there could be an earth that like there was like it's post-apocalyptic, yeah. like endless, endless, and they only take you to like three, and they're kind of boring. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, I was like, I was like, oh, what's gonna happen? What's gonna happen? And it kind of ended. Sifting out your title, Brigham. Um. Chant. So, we're not going to get on this. (laughs) Thank you. I'll make our points. It had, I think, it had the kind of things that I would usually enjoy in a film parallel worlds. Like, you know, in in each world, there's a version of you. The only 
like you meet one other version of these people and you don't even see them you just hear of them like via the internet and it's just a bit of a letdown a question yes is there a reason why people are staying in this building okay so it's like as we understand it it's like derelict so from the outside it looks fine inside it's like also, There's people no, just accidentally go in. They, it's just teenagers, the homeless, they were, diabetics. They got a... Okay, right, so there's like a further level to it. They got like a message from their dad saying, come home. So they went to their house, but it wasn't there. And they found this be like s- space ball. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> space ball. Um, obviously, there's, not, there's no space and it's sorry, but like a... Standard narrative device I, is a space ball. Is, they found a space ball and... Uh, they're like, what the fuck? And then apparently this space ball comes from like the core earth. And then you're kind of given a glimpse of, right, so obviously someone made this building. Like who, what world has the technological inv- advancements? They like yeah. travel through parallel universes and then just leave it there. Like what's going on? Who's in charge of this? But then you never, you just don't. Uh, one question about that though. <laughs> I know that. I know that Parallels was kind of a low enough budget. Do you think that the reason you don't see those worlds is maybe about a uh, hindrance because of the budget? Definitely. Yeah, I, I think, think so. the words that they do show you, like, so there's like a post-apocalyptic one and you really don't see more than like a field. Mm. Um, There's like a kind of more future well, It's all the same time, basically, but it's yeah. more like yeah. futuristic, I'll say. And you only really see them ordering it like a food van, you know? Yeah. But I think originally it was supposed to be like a TV show. So they had it written as a TV show. It never went. So they smooshed it into a film. So I mean, like each episode would have been a different timeline? Yeah. I think so. I, I think, think that, that would have been, been really cool. Well, that's, that's sliders with a building. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's perfect. What I was uh, that's yeah. exactly what sliders was. Like. So it's like, it, it's quite tantalizing, but it doesn't satisfy you, really. And out of 10? <sighs> I think if it's six, Did you? Oh, that's better I thought it was like a, he perked there up was a lot right of, at the very end. I'd hate to see a one give up. <laughs> There's a lot of things that I liked about it. It just didn't give me enough of yeah. what you want. Yeah. So was it just the characters arguing like how they're going to get back or how no? no the the characters seemed very much like quite accepting of like madness straight away. You know, like they were like they were for, they were what the fuck? And then they were okay. Was you that what Jarn? Yeah, it was like, like oh, that's bit, yeah. The kid, they didn't even seem like they were real people, characters. Maybe, or, yeah, pe- you know, people. Mi- maybe it's like the whole primer thing though that they've done this before. But it's not. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's just bad writing. Stop trying to give everyone the benefit of the doubt, Mikey. I'm a nice person. For <laughs> uh, and the the ending is probably the most unsatisfying. But so if you ever do watch it, just look out for that crap. Just, oh, I thought you were going to say just don't watch the ending. <laughs> <laughs> no, well actually, you, it feels like you haven't. Tur- turn off the last ten minutes and make up your own end. <laughs> <laughs> no, well the ending's about the last ten seconds, so that's all. Yeah, just right. turn that off. Yeah, always. That's right, they drafted us some for that screenplay. I forgot about that. They save us. Because <laughs> <laughs> we're Hollywood script doctors. Hey, <laughs> <laughs> right, we've got some serious form, man. It's hand job, Kevin. There are others. <laughs> 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 what was the one in there? Uh, famine the sequel. Oh, Famine the sequel? I'm working on that at the moment. What, in like the 10 minutes it's taking for me to write that? I mean, you've seen me jutting. <laughs> Jutin? I meant to say Jutin. <laughs> I, I, I thought I got a word. <laughs> Although, in fairness, I love the term Jutin. Is that like a kind of polite fart? <laughs> no, no, no it, was, it was an accent, but I'm, I'm going to use that now for writing. Oh, it sounds like... Jutin's all down here. <laughs> Just sounds like I'm really Scottish. 
No, it's I don't know, maybe it's just me, but it seems something to do with sperm. I get over it, it was ages ago. Jutin. Jutin. Don't, don't you say we'll go for a wee jute? That means we'll go for a wee juke. No, juke. That's a wee juke. That's luck. Juke. 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 Right. Have a juke at that. Juke. slang term for a lady's vagina. A lady's a juke. A la- As opposed to a, um, a gentleman's vagina. <laughs> a, la- <laughs> a lady garden, as I like to call it. Anyway. Jute is a fanny. Yeah. Of course it is. You knew that, Mickey. No, Stop being innocent. I didn't. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, come on. We say jute all the time. Oh, clearly, I've been. I have. I misunderstood the conversation. Yes, I Try and think of a simple sentence. <laughs> so I've, I've been hearing that word quite a lot, and I've jit? completely misunderstood yeah. what was going on in those. What did you think, jit meant? Just sort of a look at something. No, that's a juke. No, juke or a jute? You can you can have a juke or a jute. <laughs> <laughs> And he is. <laughs> Jit is also a major export of Cambodia. <laughs> I we sell jute bags in my work now as well. What is actual jute? A jute, a jute is a person who comes from Jutland, who, who <laughs> say, typically settled in Hampshire and the Isle of Wight. <laughs> Those vaginas. The, the, the most forgotten Germanic settlers of Britain. The Angles, the Saxons, and the Jutes. <laughs> Please be anyway. true. Mr. Hushley true. comes on. <laughs> we're, we're being so educational <laughs> this episode. Um, so, uh, did you have more on the Jutes? Maybe they were considered very less warlike than the Angles and Saxons, so it became a bit of a slur against them and then <laughs> morphed into uh, a Fine. lady's body part. Will the Jutes ever invade us? By the... <laughs> no, I don't think so. I think they just joined in with the rest of them and became the English. <laughs> <laughs> yes, self-loving Englishman, my favourite type. Uh, Shan Kyle, what did you watch this week? I watched Happy Christmas uh, because it's come to Christmas. Merry right, Christmas, though. No, thanks, man. That's why I brought the more wine, you know. But it's come to Christmas, so it's feeling about festive. So I decided to watch a essentially mumblecore Christmas film. You all know mumblecore. No. Uh, Mumblecore is a movement uh, essentially in its own genre it started in America in like the mid 2000s it's essentially films that are ridiculously low budget some of them not shot in any budgets whatsoever they're handheld they don't really use lighting devices or, or any sort of they're not really produced they're very very amateur looking but they just focus on very real people real stories usually people in like their 20s and 30s big accusations go against it because it's it was quite hubster at the time because usually focused on people who sort of Hubs their backgrounds, but I, I, don't, I don't get that. I think it just focuses on, on young people. It's a really interesting look because I think it's the truest look at young people that you can get because obviously there's no shooting interference and it's young people making these films about young people. Uh, one of the main proponents of Mumblecore, one of the guys who sort of started the movement, except the the Plash Brothers, is a guy called Joe Swanberg. He's uh, ridiculously prolific because obviously Mumblecore films can be shot, shot such low budget and usually around like 80, 85 minutes long and because they don't really have to go through much production or production value, you can have Mumblecore directors who can maybe churn out you know, five, six films a year. I mean, like that's really, really amateur, but Joe Swanberg does a lot of films. Uh, this film, Happy Christmas, is obviously set at Christmas time. There's only like four or five people in the cast, and it's uh, Joe Swanberg's the main actor, and he also does a bit of acting. But his sister, Anna Kendrick, comes to stay in his house over Christmas because she's just split up with her boyfriend, and she's looking to move to Chicago. And whereas Joe Swanberg's character's kind of very settled down with his wife, and they've got a young kid, and they're leaving behind the sort of 
you know, like that madness days of their youth and they're finally going on the more adult oriented goals, you know, like raising the kid and shit like that. Anna Kendrick's still, I think, like 27, 28, and she's still very much in the madness days. And because she's just single again for the first time in a long time, she's kind of coming under her house and, and ruining the vibe that they have, you know, by like bringing people back and come back to the house drunk at one point she comes back. And it's actually a fucking story very personal to ourselves is that she puts a pizza in the oven and nearly burns the house down which is what happened to me and Dan when we loved each other <laughs> love each other at university we've all done that yeah I've, I've done really that done yeah. yeah, I did it with my waffles my friend does that quite a lot It's and he pisses himself quite a lot on <laughs> <laughs> Just a does, does that happen in the film no one pisses themselves no, no. I always wanted to see Anna Kendrick piss herself me too mm. <laughs> it's uh, see what I like about the film what I like about mumblecore films in general is that it just seems so real it seems like you're watching your friends you know friends you've never met like but i mean it seems like you're watching people that you know it's everybody <laughs> you're, uh, they're you your friends you just haven't met them yet you always hear about like films being improvisational and stuff like that but this is completely improvised there's essentially no script so that whole film is just those actors getting together maybe getting a feel for the characters and just creating them on the spot and you can tell there's a great rapport between them there's a great chemistry because they just it seems like it's just shooting people having an actual conversation about growing up and what I like about it, obviously, as somebody who's, you know, kind of in their late 20s, it speaks volumes to me because it touches on so much. There's so many things, and I guarantee if everyone who's here also in your 20s watching, you would relate to so much stuff. Way more than, you know, one of these maybe Paramount Vantage or and the films that are constructed or these American days. American Pie, perhaps. Exactly, exactly. So I really, really do American Pie. You said, well, did you try and write a pie once? Oh, I did it. <laughs> <laughs> what <What's this> <laughs> Anna Kendrick in Puss Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Are you shooting to me? I saw don't laugh. <laughs> why, why didn't you just say it? Yeah, why didn't you just say it? He was on a run. I don't want to say it, but I didn't want to obviously oh, interrupt no. him. Like, so. like considerate man, thank you very much, Dan, but that was hilarious. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it is actually like watching people that you know, and it, it, it speaks about a lot of things that I think are, are relevant to us. And I think that that's the reason why Mumblecore doesn't really have a big open market because I think it only could appeal to certain people I think if you were maybe even in your late 30s or 40s you would watch it and it would be very tiresome for you yeah. because you would think oh that's you might get a wee hunt of nostalgia thinking oh that's somebody I used to be but I mean I'm obviously this person now I've got a family or whatever not the pigeonhole people in their 40s but it's a great film really really natural and it just strikes a nerve I think big time that's what I was going to ask you is it one of them ones that it it hits a bit too close to home too much in there <laughs> I, I, I was like, watching that's and, exactly me <laughs> I was watching and she's sitting drinking in the house eating pizza and all and just like not even going out and I was like fuck's sake it's my Thursday night like, <laughs> <laughs> but I it has, it's really really well handled too by, by Joe Swanbrook I, I think his main tool that he's got in his locker is he's just got a phenomenal observation of how people actually go on how people actually react and, and interact with each other and Watch that there's actually essentially no plot besides Anna Kendrick going into that house. There's no plot. There's a couple of things that happen, like her neighbour in the house down with a pizza and stuff like that. But all or not, it's just people talking. But you're that invested in the characters because it seems so natural that it feels like you're just part of their conversation. Can you I, know what I mean? Can I watch this film quite stoned? I think you, I think being stoned would make it fucking ten times better because it would actually make you feel like you're in the room with them. Yeah, You'd be trying to that, interact with them and all. Anna, give me your number. Anna, the pizza's in the oven! <laughs> Anna! <laughs> you're going to burn it! I love it as well. That's just you saying that. That is how mundane 
and how observational real life most mumblecore films are is that the big plot point is the pizza's in the oven to be honest man if I'm stoned that sounds way too hard for me like, Jesus pizza <laughs> that's that's pizza don't, don't burn it I want to eat it <laughs> and two pound on Tesco's <laughs> but, uh, no, the, the great irony would be that you're so engrossed in the film you burn your own pizza ah, in the oven <laughs> yeah life of a tits art yeah but uh one are we talking about mumblecore? I've just always really liked this term because we brought it up a, a good few weeks back, and I don't think it, it made it onto the episode. But obviously, it's kind of carrying the torch, in and the fact that it's improvisational and it's you know very low funded, uh, you know sometimes essentially no funding whatsoever. It's carrying the torch from like John Cassavetes' films from the nineteen fifties and sixties, which had no fun and he essentially is the, the godfather of like independent cinema in America and he kind of created that improvisational style and because it's now focused in mumblecore on like young 20-somethings and slackers it's called slack Avedis. sometimes mumblecore films could be called slack Avedis films which I thought was funny because I'm a film geek but whatever mm, <laughs> but did, you, did you expect that to get a bigger laugh? I don't, no, I don't expect <laughs> it I just, I just like it as a, as a trivia but I do find it quite interesting to say that uh, it's you could it would only appeal to you if you're maybe in your early thirties or younger, because I think that's there's a huge shift in as you've grown up what you expect out of life compared to yeah. the last few decades. There's a there is a great great shift. Obviously, there's a great divide in wealth now and expectations because a lot of people when they're young they will go to university. They're told to go to university and then they end up with just huge amounts of debts and they yeah. don't ever be- become. Now that's that's a that's actually a very old sort of thing within within cinema people that never actually quite make reach their dreams. Could have been a contender. Mm. I actually realised this week that I'm looking forward to being thirty. Why? Because then then you act your age. You're basically thirty. No, already, you know? no, because then I can say that I'm doing this shit on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> People still look at you when you're in twenties, like ah, twenties will grow you out do of it. Do you want you? But thirty, I'm still doing the shit. <laughs> I'll still see. be buying Lego. <laughs> I think I think I'm prematurely in my thirties. I got excited last week about buying a TV stand. This is how bad it's getting now. This so in how much I've embraced adult life. Well, Jesus, I have TV envy now because your TV's two That's inches right, bigger I got than a bigger mine. TV than my camera's rigged. She hadn't told me you bought a new TV. I was like, oh, what kind? What was it? Uh, but may, may HDMI's the other one. His first question. All, you are getting fucking old. His first question. Many inches you got me. <laughs> <laughs> but I think me, Don and Kiefer are very much mired still in our 20s. Yeah. yeah. I don't. I don't think I'll have a TV once I have my own house. Ah, fuck off. I'll do. I'll do. Fuck you, hipster. I'll do. You'll be doing this podcast anymore. <laughs> well, what's all your furniture going to be pointed at? <laughs> <laughs> just my bookcase. Ah, oh, fuck. On, on, on just... the encyclopedic knowledge of the Jutes. <laughs> <laughs> we got a <our> reader. <laughs> but just to wrap it up on Mumblecore, uh, I think one of its great strengths is not only how ridiculously observational and how close to the bone it can be sometimes, but just I, for me personally, I think it's some of the best acting I've ever seen because it's not acting. It is that those people know their characters so well and they're improvising and they're making up their own dialogue and their own backgrounds for those characters that it's essentially just, you know, four or five people talking it's and expressing their own emotions, but, you know, w- within the confines of this character. They do it, they're doing it sort of Ken Loach style. Yeah, it's so, phen- exactly, it's so phenomenally natural that it's just like actual people and it's so refreshing outside of the documentary world. I, th- I think that might be easier because. Sorry to interrupt you there, but some of the Ken Loach films, they're always a very political slant on some of them. 
yeah. like uh, Land and Freedom and Wind That, Sh- Wind that Shakes the Barley. Yeah. Sometimes you could see it in the scenes that they, because they have to improvise it, doesn't seem quite natural. They just relaying the facts that they know about yeah. that time period. Whereas this, there's there's no kind of social political spun on most mumblecore films. Never mind Happy Christmas. It literally is just about twenty sons yeah. loving their lives, and there's maybe a slight narrative bump along the way just to kind of inform the rest of the narrative. But the characters and their act, well, the, the actor's ability is, is so good and so natural that you just go along with it, even though not how much has happened. It's just watching these interesting people and you want to see where it pans out because I think that the stories you can relate to more. You know I mean? I personally can relate to somebody's sister coming and staying with them and the internal conflict inside that house as opposed to a fucking robot blowing up a city. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's it's just something that you're more versed in. It's something that you understand more because it's just life. Like, really? Yeah. You know what I mean? Well, will we do a mumblecore film then? Just in here? Well, that's what, just you whack can, up a few you cameras. You can so easily do a mumblecore film but at, at the same time, none of us are very good natural actors. None of us are actors. <laughs> I, I'm who do you think you're talking to here? <laughs> I've, been, I've been in many productions. I've been on I've well, been yeah. in stage in front of my mare and I got all the main parts in school. I played a snowman once and Pontius Pilate and the Easter play. I played Jesus. I could have had big things. Three I times know. I was the Lord Jesus. I was <laughs> Three uh, times. I was a present. <laughs> I'm not joking. I had to like wear a bow on my head and stand inside a box and sing a song about presents. Oh, that's lovely. And then I was the ass end of the donkey once. For like <laughs> <laughs> no, but for like half a day and then I wasn't even allowed to do it. Oh, you couldn't even be an ass? I know. I know, and then in first year I was lead reveler, which was (laughs) 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 that that was. I mean, I was an acting. I was drunk. (laughs) 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 That was my my favorite character name ever. Lead reveler. Just, just. I had a wife and all. It was great. (laughs) 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 I saw this is my life. I'm ready. They wrote that part for you. (laughs) (laughs) Dan, any acting credits? Oh. I've won a gold medal at Fesh. We used to do like you know like public speaking. And That's stuff. not acting. Uh, <laughs> it's performing. It's performance. I, and you know, I I have a, I got a gold medal at Fesh. Like, did you know anything? What? Uh, saying a poem when I was five. Oh, right. well, mine's when I was a bit older. You know, the standard was a bit higher. Ooh. Well, yeah. no, I think Fesh envy. No, I think the category like it's get easier as you get older. Like. You think so? Well, I definitely. You can Just read because I won more. it when I was older, you think it gets easier <laughs> when you get older? No, it's because. When you're younger, it 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 relies on your natural God-given ability. Okay, you're oh a better actor than me, man. But That's when you get older, you have all these techniques and there's all these wee fucking tricks, and you're just playing up. <laughs> you're just hamming it up for the judges and all. You're just pandering. It's no, all it's so bullshit. Weird, it's yeah. just pure fish bait, you know what I mean? It's pure. <laughs> <fish bait>. <laughs> <laughs> Mikey, I have a genuine question. Did you peak when you were five? I did. <laughs> Mikey, by the way, Garden said shite. Oh my word. That's I know. <laughs> Get this guy out of here. No, we do like fetches where we like read out poems, but you know, I did like an Irish poem, but I don't know what it was. You know, I don't know what it like translated as. You just learned how to say the words and like put like a sort of emphasis on certain words Man. other than others, but you know, I can tell you what it was about. Could you say it first nah. right now? Nah, I couldn't. Recite me a poem, Daniel. <laughs> no. Okay, fair enough. Oh, do, do Autumn Goodbye. Come on, that's your crown and glory. And I don't remember. All I remember is that the end says Autumn Goodbye. There is no poem. That is the poem. No, <laughs> there is an actual full poem. It goes on just into December as well, so that's very relevant. Ah. For some backstory for the listeners, uh, I was going through some old stuff one one time, and I found a poem I wrote in like primary one or two, so when I was about like six or seven or something, and it was a poem about autumn. So I'm assuming just everybody had to write a poem about autumn. 
So it was just like all oh, the leaves falling off the tree, blah blah, and all that. And so at the end, I the last line just ended with autumn, and then I wrote goodbye at the bottom. <laughs> <laughs> so because for some reason I thought I was writing a letter, the autumn or something. I don't know. <laughs> but Chan has loved this story so much; he built up this whole scenario yeah. in his head. I built a structure in my head that I could picture Mickey sitting in this log cabin, this snow-capped mountain. Stamp with a brandy out of window and this weekend a smoking jacket. Obviously an established writer. What there, I want to close my eyes. Just visualize it, visualize it. Yeah, yeah. So he's standing, he's only after writing his masterpiece. And he's sitting, tear runs down his cheek very softly as he looks out and he gently whispers, Autumn. Yeah. Goodbye. <laughs> that's, that's, that's because the last leaf off the tree has fallen down. Yeah. And as it goes to <laughs> save with his tear. <laughs> I'm saying Mickey is the Robert Frost we ever had, I'm telling you. <laughs> That's beautiful. Isn't it? We might have fun with that. I think we could definitely do it. What? A mumblecore. A mumblecore about you being a writer? Should we just do a mumblecore yeah. of you your log cabin? Let's do it. Hey, where's the nearest log cabin? <laughs> <laughs> you can rent ones in Munkrana. There you go. Can you we go. do it like in the style of like it's monkey. really just like a school play and I can act as a leaf? Yeah. I'm, I was a present. No, oh, no, 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 yes. <laughs> oh, yes, no, I. Kiva, you're obviously going to be the lead reveler. <laughs> That's down. You got that nail now, look. You can just be in a different room and just revel. <laughs> <laughs> she was there when I moved in. <laughs> Here's a cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact. You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Okay, so we shall move on to... Topics. Um, so yeah, my topic first, because I'm like that. <laughs> now, the new trailer for Batman vs. Superman came out. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to discuss it a bit. And maybe go into a further topic. discussion <laughs> discussion of traders spoiling films. Yeah, big time. <laughs> because I I've been excited for Batman vs Superman. I've enjoyed the other trailers that, was, that have come out. I even enjoyed the we they released the wee clip before this trailer came out, which is essentially just like a scene from the film of. Batman chained up and Superman comes in and rips off his coil and all. It was, I thought it was pretty sweet, just wee moment in the film. It was just pretty cool. But this trailer then, I enjoyed the first half of it. Yeah. I thought, I, 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 re- I really liked at, at the beginning just uh, 
Bruce Wayne and your other boy. <laughs> <laughs> Clark Kent having a conversation. I, I I even didn't mind like Lex Luthor coming in. He, like he was kind of being like a wee annoying kind of character or whatever. Jesse Eisenberg was Lex Luthor. Yeah, he's like he's not bald, but they're being cut in age. I think he's going to become bald. More likely. Like he gets krypton radiation or something. So we're breaking away from like the comic book series then all. I guess what comic book films are doing generally these days. Hey, well, they're just changing. Did Batman and Superman ever meet? Oh, yeah, there's a famous comic of when they did fight the Dark Knight Returns. I mean, this is literally a film that has been in the making for nearly fucking 30 years. This is like the comic book film that everybody's always wanted to sort of see. They actually teased it in I Am Legend. What is that about? There's a billboard of Batman versus Superman in the background of one of the scenes. Okay, I was never into comic books, so I wouldn't know. Just strictly hard literature for you. <laughs> just, just, just Russian hard Russian literature. <laughs> About jits. Um, <laughs> but yeah, the the first half of the trailer, I was I was on it. I was enjoying it. I I kind of liked like because a lot of it was just just kind of wee scenes playing out, like the the mm. conversation and stuff, and then the actual confrontation of Batman versus Superman. But then it just goes on the second half where they just start explaining too much and Lex Luthor's voiceover just it's giving you too much exposition Lex position let's go hey, hey that had to be in there you had to be had to be cooking that one for a while felt that one up that wasn't a suitcase <laughs> <laughs> but uh yeah and it just it g- gives away way too much then and it it right you don't know this is the film but I think it basically tells you the third act of the film yeah, even you're 100% right. I don't think anybody could watch that trailer and not think, Jesus Christ, they've shown way too much. They've basically told me the narrative and they've completely spoiled everything for me. Because, I mean, they even... And if you haven't seen the trailer, sorry, this is a spoiler, but they even show you Doomsday. Yeah. Why? What's the necessity? First of all, even on a basic level, I don't even see the necessity in that trailer in general. The film's still a year away. Or, well, no, well, well, fair, no, yeah, well the film's still... months now. Yeah, it's well, the film's still, what, about seven months away? No, it's out in, like, March, I think. Is it March? Oh, shit, I thought it was June. No, I think it was originally June, and then they moved. Right. I think it's either March or May, but I'm pretty sure okay, it's March. Okay, well, obviously, right, there is a necessity because they're trying to wet people's whistle because the release date's coming up. But at the same time, what is a necessity in a trailer that is showing you that much? Because it's Batman versus Superman. You're fucking absolutely guaranteed that that is going to break records, and there's going to be so many people going to see it. And obviously, the market men want to keep it relevant, and they want to keep you on the edge of your seat. But I, th- I think that's just the, the, the first basic rule of marketing. Don't give them everything. Like, And they show you Doomsday, who's the main villain, and that should have been the surprise. People who didn't know Doomsday was going to be in that, and Doomsday, if you don't know from the comic books, is the villain that kills Superman. You know what I mean? So are they going to try and crowbar that in there? I, I think already, and what I'm worried about for the film is that I think they're taking too much on. Batman vs Superman, the film has been built up so much, and it's so much uh, expectation on it. That, that alone should have been the driving force. But now they've got Wonder Woman in there who shouldn't be in there. And I think Wonder Woman is sort of an irrelevant character. Now. I don't think she's got that much of a I think she's kind of got the Captain America stigma where she was really big maybe in the you know, the 50s, 60s or whatever. But now in this sort of cynical world we live in, I don't think she really fits. Don't think you need her in there because you've got two huge characters facing off anyway. Then you've got Doomsday in there, Lex Luthor's in there. And, and it's safe from what I've seen of Jess Eisenberg's Lex Luthor so far. He seems too irritating. It just I'm not liking him already. Like, you see, I I don't mind him. Like uh, going back to the first half of the trailer where he kind of in- interrupts Bruce Wayne and Clark Kent having a conversation. And he's all like, "Oh, people meeting, other people bringing together, and all that." It is it is a bit annoying, but it 
like if you think of it maybe he's he's trying to kind of like uh like bruce wayne he goes on a certain way but then he's secretly batman and that's his kind of yeah. true self maybe like lex does a similar thing where he's kind of this outgoing kind of guy uh like in front of people but then he's like this evil genius mental boy in the background probably not because it's jesse eisenberg and he's probably <laughs> gonna go on the same way but no, let's give him the benefit of the doubt. <laughs> Apparently, he made his fortune because he created Facebook as well. So there you go. That's, 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 that's <laughs> the backstory. But uh, what, for me as well, what, what kind of stood out, and it's sort of worrying when you can kind of pick up really bad dialogue in a trailer, you know, because that's obviously supposed to be the best bits of the film, the stuff that's supposed to keep you enticing. There were some moments, and most of it was Eisenberg's dialogue, like, what's he say, like, the, the son of Krypton and the bat of Gotham. I know, that felt so bad, because, like, son of Krypton is, like, a big, th- like, that's what people call yeah. Superman, but, like, and bat of Gotham. <laughs> like, First, like, even the delivery was poor, and even, like, no one's ever called Batman the bat of Gotham. Like, you know, I mean, it just sounds shit. They're trying to just relate it back to son of Krypton. Yeah, like. exactly. They're trying for too much in easy comparison. I, I don't know. From seeing, see the first show was released a few months back, it got me really excited. I thought, Jesus Christ, they seem like they've, they've had this in the head. And it, it was probably because the complete focus was on Batman and Superman, which for me, obviously, because it's fucking Batman versus Superman, should be the main focus of the film. But now when I've seen that, not only because they give me way more than what I bargained for, but because I've seen that they've added all this extra stuff on, it's like, I think they're taking too much on. I think it's going to be fucking Spider-Man 3 all over again. You know what I mean? Where they, the, the executives or the producers or whatever want more stuff they went there was all oh, wonder woman she's got fans chuck her on there all oh, doomsday he kills superman get him in there you know what i mean i think it's gonna be like a bad case of too many cooks you know what i mean well i think you always kind of thought there was there was going to be a, a third party that kind of united superman and yeah. batman but the, and the problem is you've just thrown a woman in there and you have you just thrown her in there to look good and you've not actually given any substance behind well, her. Well, if... Otherwise, if, it's just an insult. If, yeah, if, if, like if, you, if you're looking at this film, because the, the film is Batman vs. Superman, Dawn of Justice, so they're obviously building up to the Justice League film, which is coming after this then. And if you, if you think of the Justice League, the big three is Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman. But I mean... So, well, okay. But so they're just trying to introduce Wonder Woman. And the Wonder Woman film is shooting now so I, I don't know if that's coming out before justice league but she's going to get her own film so that'll explain the character more i think she is just cropping up a bit in this here but i i don't see any problem with having wonder woman in there but it's just the the what, main what happens if the wonder woman film flops because then there's a worry that the producers for the next one precisely try and and then she's just in this particular <laughs> and, and this is massively presumptuous, but I think the whole Wonder Woman revival has a, a serious waffa Electra about it because I don't think Wonder Woman is that popular anymore. I think that she was always a kind of boring character anyway, and it's widely said, but Wonder Woman was essentially created because there was no real woman representation of superheroes. And if you actually look at Wonder Woman's backstory, it's so one-note. She's such a fucking dull character, and I, I really don't think that a character like that fits in this sort of dark modern superhero world that Snyder's trying to create you know what I mean but obviously they, they can make they can change the character to make a fit and yeah. the, like from what you hear about the Wonder Woman film is that it's going to be it's going to be have it's going to be set in like three different time periods so she's been a, around a long time and so she's been around she's been around <laughs> but uh, yeah so like I think you, like there's some stuff where it looked like World War 2 kind of stuff and so she'll be kind of traveling through time, and you, you'll see that character develop. I don't, I, I don't th- think there's any problems with having her in it because she is one of the big three, 
I mean, after but those... Same, is she anymore? Like, Batman and Superman are just on aye, the level they, of popularity. Aye, is, right, Batman and Superman are the ultimate comic book characters overall. They're the most popular. It's always the best thing DC had going for them. I mean, the thing that Marvel did with their cinematic universe is that they took these characters that not a lot of people knew, and then they they made films about them and made people care about them. See, I've always I've always been under the impression though, and I've always kind of believed that Marvel have always had just way more better characters than DC. DC only really can rely on Batman, Superman. Maybe if he's done right, Green Lantern, maybe Green Arrow. Whereas Marvel have a plethora. Like, I mean, yeah. even Marvel's third ranked say superhero in popularity was Iron Man and Iron Man was huge like and obviously it was a slight body of risk at the time they released that in 2008 but he's still had a huge fan base I mean to compare Iron Man's popularity even before that film they Wonder Woman's I oh, well, no, well, a shit right before Iron Man came out if you if you ask people who's Iron Man or who's Wonder Woman who do you think they would know the name of like? I think they would know they would definitely know Wonder Woman but I don't think she was I think it's just because she is the woman superhero but that's that's the thing that's 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 all they need they like the, yeah, like you're going back into the actual well, lore like, of the comics and stuff but they they can build this up from scratch like they make it an interesting well-rounded character i hope they do that's what I, oh, obviously the, you never the, want that film to fail but the the worry is like as shanda said oh it's that's the woman superhero yeah and that's that's as what i'm saying you like, created a you've created a superhero but you've just changed it to a woman, that's an, and, and you haven't actually explored the depths of what this woman might or might may not be. That's or. what I'm trying to say, and I think that but is they, essentially they why. Can do that now. But that's it's essentially why Wonder Woman was created, like you know, what I mean, just so there was sort of like a, a, a fair balance of of the genders, you know, what I mean, in the comic book world. Well, sure, like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles was made to make fun of Daredevil, you know, what I mean. Yeah. <laughs> It's like it doesn't matter why they were made. I mean, like Robin what about was their comparison. <laughs> like but, like, but like Robin was made just to like get on younger readers. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, gives a shit about Robin. I know, but, <laughs> but I'm just saying, like you're 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 bringing up the actual origin of why Wonder Woman came about. It doesn't matter. She's she is an iconic character. People know Wonder Woman, so they can build up this brand new character. They can have it be a good character. I don't I, like that's also, not I mean, the I problem think, I had no, with see, the trailer. I 100% agree. I'm saying that they can do what they've done with Captain America and completely and utterly refresh this character and very much throw them or drag them, kick them and scream them in the 21st century because Captain America, until he was recreated, was ridiculously did it. And they can definitely do that with Wonder Woman. I think it'll take strong writers, but I just don't think that she's got a place in that film. I think there's enough going on. I think from what I've seen, it's only two hours. And I think that it would actually be more... I know they're trying to introduce her, but I think in a very cynical way, they're just trying to introduce her to promote her own film after that, as opposed to her being introduced to serve the plot in any sort of integral way. You know what I mean? Yeah, I know what you mean, but I don't think we can really comment on that until you see how she fully yeah. plays out. The thing that we were bringing up about the trader is the fact that they showed you too much. Yeah. And now you, you could you could basically break down that whole film now from that trader. Like, act one, the tension builds between Batman and Superman. Act two, they have a big fight. Act three, Lex L- Lex Luthor's fucked off, but nobody died. So now he creates Doomsday. They fuck up the Doom. Yeah, I think that essentially is what the plot's going to be. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's basically been spoon fed through. That, see, that's that's the biggest problem I have with the trailer. I, and it's just you didn't need to show Doomsday. I was wondering that about the Revenant, the you know the new Leonardo DiCaprio mm-hmm. film, because I watched that trailer again, and I really really enjoyed it. But I mean, yeah. that's that's the, that's the polar opposite. That, that's a trailer that's showing you now. I mean, there's not even dialogue in that trailer. Well, from what I gathered, right, 
they they go out they they're on a I don't know they're going for an expedition a, by the same an expedition maybe they're trading some furs with uh, a native tribe somewhere the Jutes the Jutes the Jutes, the Jutes, the Jutes, the Jutes <laughs> of North America some Americans with them. and uh, <laughs> and then Bring some Jutes for them the Jutes need fur <laughs> 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 it, it goes wrong and then they have to they have to get back to he's, a, he's attacked by a bear he's attacked by a bear and then they have to try and drag him back his son who is half Native American half European tries to save him but then the son dies in front of him Tom Hardy kills the son so it becomes a, a vengeful mission but by the time he gets back to the frontier town it seems like it's set in sort of either just before or just around sort of the American Civil War because mm-hmm. you've got Don- Donald Gleason's character and then he seems to be wearing the blue coat of American yeah. Confederate no oh no sorry Union Union, union man no. so obviously he gets back there and maybe Donald's character doesn't trust Leonardo DiCaprio everyone trusts Tom Hardy more and then Tom Hardy's gone off on another expedition but he has to follow there there's a crisis of uh, conscience with Donald Gleason, and then he eventually he doesn't trust Leo but then it comes back around and then but that's, see, that's what you that's what I've gathered by just watching like the little flicks of the scenes but see your, your basic summary of that is, is exactly what we're trying to say and how that trailer is the antithesis of what the Batman vs Superman trailer is because the Batman vs Superman trailer literally spoon feeds you the narrative that trailer you're on about the Revenant you're packing that up you're, you're, you're guessing and that's the whole point you're mm. guessing so you're thinking oh is that what happens oh jeez I really want to go see this film that's marketing Whereas that has just told you, that, fair enough, people are still going to go see Batman vs Superman, but they're going to go see it now and it's going to be very underwhelming, I think, because, well, you know what, maybe we're wrong. Maybe maybe there is, I mean, they're not that, they're not stupid, they know what they're doing, but at the same time, I, I still I think, think they are stupid. I, I still <laughs> think they've shown too much. Because, right, e- even if, right, that three-act thing that I just said there now for Batman vs Superman, even if that isn't actually the film and there's a big kind of third-act thing, like, Doomsday does kill Superman and then Aquaman has to bring Superman back to life or some bullshit like that, <laughs> it's it it doesn't matter because watching that trailer it feels like that's the whole film and actually watching the trailer for the first time it I just felt disheartened and it it kind of near like I'll still go see the fucking film but <laughs> but like a, a lesser man might not be. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, a lesser man no not a lesser Ooh. man because I, I am the lowest man but um, <laughs> no it's because like I I'm I'm under these comic book films I'll I'll go see it no matter fucking what like but like somebody that's just kind of like a more cynical man. Dan Killen, possibly. Definitely. Uh, <laughs> see, thing as well, though, I mean, it's the audience that you're sort of looking at, or maybe the purpose of these films and what they serve. I mean, The Revenant, I mean, if I don't care if anyone tells me the entire story. I mean, there's so much more to that. I imagine from yeah. how well it's going to be directed, how well it's going to be acted, and that's the type of audience that that will have. But if you look at Batman versus Superman, there might be some people who, because Wonder Woman's in it, might go see it now. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? And they wouldn't have before because, you know, they really want to see, like, this character. And well, that's you know, a plus she, for I, the trailer. No, I know it is a plus, but, you know, people who you said yourself you're going to go see the film I mean you will go see it and you know it's like it. the people who are going to go see Batman vs Superman already are going to see it they're not going to wait in word of mouth or whatever yeah. or even if it is really bad or even if the trailer gives away so much and it's like it's, it's in a different sort of climate or whatever or it has different expectations as a release compared to some no, of the but, but I still think the trailer for me anyway it does give away way too much but what, what you're saying I, th- I think you're right for a certain amount of people that they're just going to see it because they've been dying for Batman vs Superman and they're going to see it no matter what but the, you, you do get people that don't actually care that much about comic book films they, they might like 
<laughs> like, are you are you going to go see this film? I wasn't going to go see that. I wasn't a chance. Okay, <laughs> but no, it's just going to be like same old. I mean, you even I, see like the same cities being destroyed. And I don't really want to talk that much during this because I'll just slate it. I just I hate superhero slate films. It? I fucking work. Well. I mean, I, I, you know, I know I haven't seen the film, and I might eventually watch they're it. Just, but it's like they just, just seem very like, formulaic. Yeah. You know, but you see, this 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 is my thing. Even even if even if we're wrong and there is a big third act thing or whatever. This trailer feels like it's the entire film, and mm. it's going to, like say if people like Dan or like they're kind of on the fringe of, of like between me and Dan, like they might go see it if the trailer looks interesting. Now that they see this trailer and think, well, that's just the whole fucking film. Why would I pay to go see that air? I think they're losing those people, yeah. and the whole point of a trailer is to make people want to go see your film. Yeah. And like, I'm going to go see this film, but. I felt disheartened after watching this trailer, so it even brought my expectations down. So it's a bad trailer. I think it's it's a big letdown too because any film that you're ever excited about or any film that you've ever wanted to go see, you want to go see it because you obviously are interested in the characters in the storyline, but you don't know the resolution, you don't know what happens. And I think because that, as I've said already, spoon feeds you so much, it's kind of like you're going on there now. Arena, it's, it's kind of stole it stole the mystique away. You know, what I mean, it's it yeah. stole it stole the kind of excitement in a way, like because it's shown you too much. And I think that's a big letdown, considering how much money's been investing, considering how long people have been waiting for the film. And it's very, very rare that marketers make that mistake of doing that. And the trailer show for a film that has been so bolt up and is so anticipated. For them to do it with this film of all films, I just find mind boggling. No, it's just what, rare. What what films can you think of that you've seen the trailer for and then you've watched the film and then you've realised you basically knew what was going on I think just any any sort of I, I wouldn't say I would know the, the plot inside out but I think any blockbusters obviously are kind of sort of straightforward easy narratives yeah, you yeah. know what I mean they're kind of conveyor belt narratives that you've got a one in formula there and then you just kind of have certain characters or certain plot lines that are slightly tweaked just to make it kind of half interesting so it's not literally identical to the previous blockbuster you've seen but you can always kind of second guess what's going to happen. You know, like you know what I mean. Um, what films have you seen then, where you've you've seen the trailer, and you've got an idea, and then it's completely changed? Prometheus, maybe. And Bruges as well, but I think it's a per marketing. I that you know what Dan has had the nail on the head. That that's the perfect one. And Bruges was marketed as some sort of rampy, campy sort of two Irish men on holiday gangster film really? whereas it's obviously this deep sort of exploration I was so pleasantly of, surprised I remember we went we to see went it together to see it. Yeah. we still had a sort of general interest because we liked Brenton Gleeson we, I, I've always been a big fan of Colin Farrell I think he's one of the most underrated actors of, of his generation and we came in and we were jaw dropped it's like mm. one of our favourite films of the past 10 or 15 years because we went there expecting some sort of travelogue crime film that's got all the usual sort of tropes but I think it's because the two lead actors were Irish the director was Irish that it kind of maybe had a wee bit of, a wee bit more of an appeal just because we could relate to that and it's very rare that you would see a sort of Irish crime film especially with that caliber of actor mm. but when we went to I, see it it was, it was so well written it was so deep in this sort of exploration of guilt and the Catholic guilt actually mm. like we were talking about earlier almost Scorsese's earlier films it was so beautifully shot and it was very poetic especially towards the end I'm not going to spoil it but it's an amazing film. That's that's a film that really just overwhelmed me because I didn't expect much going on it. And I've always said it since episode one of this podcast that there's nothing better than going on to a film and not expecting anything of it. And it proves you wrong. Yeah. Because you have no expectancy whatsoever. And you've actually kind of, in a sort of grim way, prepared yourself for a negative experience. And it, it completely goes against that. And it's on the end. It may be a film that you cherish or a film that you love forever. I think it's an amazing thing. Another film like that is World's Greatest Dad. 
the trailer for that sets it up like it's Rob Rob Williams in a film called World's Greatest Dad. You think it's just going to be like a kind of wacky comedy, and the whole trailer just sets up his son as just this dickhead son, and it's Robin Williams trying to deal with his dickhead son, and it's just supposed to be this kind of just like, wacky comedy. That's all, but in in sooth. <laughs> it it it's a way more darker film, and there are comedy bits to it, but it's a way more serious, in depth film than yeah. what it is. And it, I, but I think that might be purposeful. Like yeah, they were kind of films that do that. that would, like, because because if you hear Robin Williams in a film, World's Greatest Dad, especially at that time when he was doing those kind of comedies, like RV and shit, like yeah, that, like you you think. Oh, I know what this is going to be, which might turn people off from the film, but it's it's an amazing. But film. then there's a lot of people as well who be kind of turned on by that and the fact that oh, I like these sort of easy comedies. I like Robin Williams. It's Robin Williams being funny. I'll go see that, and then when they actually go see it, they probably have the complete opposite yeah. experience. They'll so like, like, what, what the, the fuck, fuck is, is this? <laughs> like, what, what, why is this so dark? What's this? Isn't Robin Williams? Another one like that is uh, Bridge to Tarabithia. The trailer for that sets it up as this kind of fantasy kids film. Like these two kids go and they. It's like fantasy world, but the actual film is this kid dealing with the death of his best friend. Oh, <laughs> drive as well. I mean, I remember yeah. leaving some of that, and I sort of knew what to expect. You know, read a lot about the film, and uh, you know, but the trailer makes it seem like it's you know, even even in the title of it, it's an all like, balls out of bath action film, yeah. but it's it's not like. But you know, I think it's amazing. But I remember leaving the boy was like, oh, did anything happened and not, and it's very very violent, but in places. Do you yeah. know what I mean? And he just didn't get what he wanted at all. But then it got him and they paid for it, so the trailer worked. And yeah. like, you know, from a monetary standpoint. And obviously Drive you could even see is like a sort of slow burning meditation on you would almost almost say a sociopath who's trying to understand love for the first time. He's a good shot then. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean and one last one, and it's one that we talked about ages ago, me and me and Heron talked about it at length uh, a few months back, is I think it's one of the most glaring examples this recently, is about time. About Time is yeah. presented. It's a Richard Curtis one, obviously. It's just been out on Netflix recently. It's presented as the most standard rom-com of all time, but it's got a slight time travel niche in there. They make it a wee bit interesting, and they put a nice wee spin in it. It's just Donald Gleeson. It's Donald yeah. Gleeson and Richard, Richard McAdams, McAdams, directed by Richard Curtis. And then when you actually watch that film, the guy gets the girl within the first 40 minutes. That's the first 40 minutes of the film, and then they're happily married. Spoilers. But <laughs> they're happily married then, 40 minutes in. The actual film is about this man, Donald Gleeson's relationship with his father. And basically with his uh, family in general, we kind of subplot on their way his sister too. And that was amazing. That, and that film kind of blew me over. I heard good reports and I thought, oh, you know, Richard Curtis, he's very sickly sweet. I like his films because they're just feel-good films. I think you would near enough have to... They're cheesy as fuck at some points, especially not in Hull. is ridiculously, ridiculously overly sentimental. Probably the most sentimental the film ever made. But there's just something inherently nice in there that kind of makes you feel good that you just look past that because sometimes it's just good they feel good I think is what I said ages ago but uh, that that bowl mover because it, it had these layers that I wasn't expecting whatsoever I was expecting a kind of meet cute boy meet scared and it, it subverted all that for me and just to bring up one that it it actually had a spoiler in for in the trailer for the film it's a uh, Terminator 2 hmm? in the trailer for Terminator 2 it's it spoils that Arnold Schwarzenegger's the good guy, and if you if you think about really? the first half an hour of that film, mm. yeah. you don't know who the good guy. Like you see 
oh, what do you call him? The other the T one thousand. Hey, but what's the actual actor? Robert Patrick. Robert Patrick. You see him. He he becomes the cop and all, and you see yeah. him looking for John. And then you see just Arnold Schwarzenegger being Arnold Schwarzenegger. There's even that scene though. So she takes like she run towards him in like the sort of prison lobby, and she falls over when she sees Arnold. And that like yeah. you know if you obviously you want him or you have to have the idea that he's the bad guy no no well no it's it's before that it's 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 the scene when john's running away from the two of them in the mall and then they're both coming down the corridor and then he doesn't know who do you kind of go go after and then on Schwarzenegger's all get down and he pulls the gun from the roses plug one (laughs) one of the coolest shots i've ever seen as well i think it was one of the first shots that i ever thought geez i'm (laughs) <laughs> I always I, there's there's so much of that film I remember just from the, the actual sound design and just him stepping on the roses it's probably the best action film ever made by the way continue but I know that that's when you find out he's the good guy when he pulls out the shotgun and just raves fucking Robert Patrick him with the shotgun like, and you think oh shit he's the fucking good guy and that's it's I, I don't think it's spoiled free because Everybody knows that film now, but if you think about it at the time, if you're going into that, and it basically told you that in the trailer, when it's at, you can see it being built up in the film. You know, it's a, it's about, it's just about the slap in the face to the actual filmmakers because it's not them making the trailers. What's what's weird as well, and I didn't even consider this because Terminator Two is probably one of the first films I can ever remember watching when I was like five or six. I mean, even though I definitely shouldn't have watched it five or six, but I always remember watching. Everybody like, watched it when they're five yeah. or six. <laughs> yeah. but no like, I, good VHS, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but because I, it's just so ingrained now in your knowledge, and it's one of the films that everybody knows so well on Side Out, that you just associate Arnie with being the good guy in the second one. It's actually hard to believe that in when the, the trailer, <laughs> yeah, when the trailer was first released, that would have been really fucking massively jarring for some people. Yeah. So that would have been a big, big hook. They actually make people believe that he was the villain in the second one too, and then picture the fucking shock when you found out. Oh no, he's he's a good guy trying to save John Connor. I've never actually even considered that because obviously, I because you, 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 you know you've it, always like, known it. Though. Yeah, it's weird. Okay, and we'll move on to our next topic, which comes from a listener. <laughs> sorry, sorry, I was I was screaming on the mic handle. I was taking a drink while she said that. <laughs> That was my man trapped in a can voice. She's <laughs> <laughs> actually being trapped in a can of a heaven. Like one. <laughs> Unless it was an empty can. My try, word. try and drink your way out, but then you're just at the bottom. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So this topic came from a listener who sent this uh, message on Facebook. What's her name? Let's talk more movies podcast on Facebook. Uh, her name is Hari Campion. Sounds like a spy. Can I read it out? She has a gun in her profile picture. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, actually, Don, Don, Dominic, woman. you read this. Harry, out. Harry with an I. Fellas, where do you stand on auteur theory? I'm doing a thing about it in college, and I could do with, and could do with some extra viewpoints. Also, before I got into media studies, I had never heard of it, and I find it fascinating. And I think other people would find it a good topic. The pros and cons of it, and how it works. I know you touched on it a few episodes back, but pissed ramblings I think will help my assignment. I'm doing about Martin Scorsese and Hayao Miyazaki. If you fancy giving them a go. Thanks. Stay awesome. Ah, thank you, Harian. Campion awesome. or champion, Har- shall we say? Harian? 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 Sorry, Harry. Harian Campy. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so yeah, auteur theory. What do we think? What do we not think? Uh, 
well, do you want do you want me to just do kind of like a background of Alter Three or? Yes, please. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, uh, Alter Three essentially was a theory that uh, originated in the French film magazine, uh, Care de Cinema, in the late nineteen fifties and early nineteen sixties. Now, some of their main writers and main proponents of the Alter Theory was Francois Truffaut and Jean-Luc Godard, who then went on to kind of unintentionally create the French New Wave, which was a sort of counterculture film movement in the early 1960s in France, which sort of went against filmmaking norms. Uh, they actually used the auteur theory as a justification for like the really kind of experimental and personal films that they were making. But going back to the auteur theory, on a basic level, it essentially means that a director is the auteur. Auteur, as a, as a French translation, is author. So he is the sole author, the sole voice of that film. So essentially, he's the main creative output. So he enhances his voice through other aspects of filmmaking, like sound design, cinematography. But those roles are very much secondary to the director. Without him, essentially, they, they would say that the film lacks a voice, it lacks originality. Truffaut even went as far as saying that there's no such thing as good and bad films, there's just good and bad directors. Which, you know, the author is a difficult one, but I'll, I'll get on that eventually. Uh, in regards to uh, the author theory, it doesn't necessarily act as a mark of quality. Just because you're an auteur doesn't mean that it is a mark of quality, but it is stated that usually the worst films of an auteur will still be better or more engaging than the best films of a non-auteur. See my films then. <laughs> I hate them all myself. What they refer to non-auteurs as is uh, Monsieur Ensign, which essentially translates and the scene makers. Uh, writers like Truffaut and, and all the all, all those guys that care to cinema, they essentially seen scene makers as a director who takes a story and just basically retells it, but it lacks originality. It lacks an authorial stump. Uh... That doesn't necessarily mean they're a bad director. There are so many directors out there who are good directors. They're competent in every sort of aspect of filmmaking. They're f I wouldn't quite say functional, because functional sounds like a negative term. But they're very good filmmakers. But their films just don't stand out. They don't have a certain visual style. They don't have a certain thematic style. A great director, as an example, is maybe, and we've mentioned him, Doug Lyman. Doug Lyman has mastered films in, in so many different genres, like Age of Tomorrow, Swingers, Born Identity. But you can never pick out a Doug Lyman film as, as being that's a Doug Lyman film, that's original, he's got a certain voice, as opposed to like watching a Hitchcock film or watching a Kubrick film and saying that's definitely yeah. Kubrick. We, we brought him up last week as well, Richard Donner. That's it, Richard Donner. He's a perfect, perfect one. There's the perfect, there is the perfect example of a scene maker or a Monsieur Ensign is Richard Donner, who was a master of, Jesus, so many genres Lethal Weapon, Superman, Maverick. Maverick. <laughs> 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 but. It's not quite a, a negative term. You know, just because you're not an auteur does not mean that you're not a talented director. It's just that auteur's films stand out for some reason. Now, how, it, how do you earn the title of becoming an auteur? You'd be a dick, baby. <laughs> exactly why. It's, it's <laughs> essentially to be an auteur or to be considered an auteur, which is a very loose theory like all theories are, is that you have a very raw distinctive visual style or you have a very distinctive voice narratively or thematically that runs consistently through your films. So Kubrick would be an auteur. Tarantino. Yes, Tarantino would be an auteur. Essentially any of the sort of canonized so directors that you would think of. Scorsese would be an auteur. John Car oh, well, fucking Scorsese is one of the main authors. John Carpenter would be an auteur. 
Wes Anderson would be an auteur. Oh, yeah. Cowan Brothers would be. Oh, 100% auteurs. Yeah. Okay. And it's all the one he touched oh, on. They're, they're the auteurs of tours. They do the tour of auteurs. Oh, that has to be a thing. Auteur tours. <laughs> just bit about Hollywood. Go to everybody's house or something. <laughs> they should make it a roller coaster or something. All right, can, can we do a, is it Mumblecore? A Mumblecore film about just auteurs, auteurs. Oh, that would be very deep. Care of cinema would have a fucking just, film just, day with Just rip it all up. Did you have like a dinner party? You know the orders or tours. Jesus! Christ. I thought about like, what the fuck? I, I even <laughs> mentioned that. that. That was a pun too far down, even, was, even uh, for yourself. Uh. <laughs> but what's strange about auteur filmmaking is that there's so many problems with, and the f- there's so many problems every year. But the problem and the, the main glaring opinion against alter theory and it's something that I, I'm kind of on the fence about is that film for me and for most people as obviously a collaborative effort most even the greatest directors the greatest alters on this earth will fucking come out and say hands down that they would not have made the films that they made without the excellent crew they had and all the work that went on now don't get me wrong I still genuinely believe that the best directors are the main creative outlet and they're the main creative voice in that film and that shows in films like you know the Coen Brothers films Scorsese's films you can tell that there is a consistent creative output from them bleeding through every single aspect of that film but at the same time I think it undermines their ridiculous level the work that our people put on and the suggestions and the ideas that our people bring forward because you know yourself that any time you go to shoot a film the f- the film that you originally want to be made is not going to be the finished product because there's so many changes there's so many things that you might have to sort of go oh no we can't do it or actually no that's a better way to do it and it's just all about collaboration it's all about conversation and then you try it a couple of different ways and whatever works best just works best I, I heard a really good quote one time that there's the film you make in pre-production. There's the film you make in production, and there's the film you make in post-production. Yeah, I had a, I had a like that's, a, and that's essentially it's what I'm going to say is basically a bastardization of that phrase. But well, maybe don't say it. Don't <laughs> say it. I just said it far better. Though. I had a, I had a lecture, I had a lecture uh, when I was at a university studying film, uh, film production classes, and he said that if you could get the any director's head and literally just plug a cable into their head and on the screen would be the film that they first imagined it would be completely and utterly different from their finished product but I guarantee they'd be far happier with the finished product than the thing that they had in their head and it's because of that collaborative effort because most directors and most writers think they know everything but then it's only through discussing with our creative people or it's only through getting all our ideas of our people because it is a, you know, a collaborative effort that you find different viewpoints you find different styles you find different things that just work better different understands the character different understands the setting different understands the location and it, it, it just it's it's very sheltered they think that a director knows best all the time now don't get me wrong like I said they should be the main creative output but I think that the auteur theory sort of canonizes these directors and really kind of looks away from the contribution of everybody else so are you are you arguing that perhaps this has become a a term which is just creating a certain element of elitism See, no, within I, filmmaking. I, again, I think it's reductive. It's definitely reductive. I think it's reductive and I do think it's quite elitist, but at the same time, the actual general structure of what the auteur theory is and what an auteur is supposed to be, I couldn't argue against most people who are named auteurs not being auteurs, you know what I mean? It's just, but at the same time, I think it can be just but a very is, cheap piece is, of terminology. Well, is that something that all directors, perhaps screenwriters, 
I, I don't. Uh, I don't aspiring to. I don't think. No, I. I, I don't I, think a director that's called an auteur would ever really call themselves an auteur. Oh, no, never. I mean, never. Maybe except ever. Tarantino. It is. It's just. It's just a very. <laughs> I'm just being a that guy. Apologize to every it, Tarantino. Fan. It's a very. It's a hugely studied theory and film. It, it's just essentially the theory and film criticism is the auteur theory. I mean, like for me in my film classes when I like went to university, or whatever, it is the first thing that they teach you is the auteur theory. Yeah, the thing I want to bring up. Uh, about the territory is that it, it stems from critics. It mm-hmm. comes from what's the magazine? Carry the cinema. Yeah, it, co- it comes from that area. It comes from critics. So is is it more of it's a it's a it's the way these critics are analyzing the films more so than like an actual theory about the actual person that's directing the thing. It's, I, I personally think it's about a both. I think that obviously critics are always going to look for a way to kind of structure their argument or, or structure or pigeonhole any sort of uh, idea that they have. And one of my main problems about the alter theory is that it's it's too neat. You know, it's, it's too black and white. Like, Rar, you're an alter and you're the ultimate creative output or you're an on and you're, you're, not, you're a hack. Yeah, you're a hack. You're not <laughs> original. Whereas we've named directors like, you know, Doug Lyman or we've uh, named... Richard Donner. Richard Donner, who aren't quite auteurs and they don't have an authorial stamp but they're obviously fucking still excellent directors Make so there's obviously that them. fucking huge grey area there like. so Steven Spielberg no he's, he's, he's an auteur there yeah there's there's Spielbergian touches that yeah. you can see in films I mean like, there's literally I mean, he's, he's got the Ian attachment to his name so you know you've done, <laughs> if you're Hitchcockian or Spielbergian you know you've done well you know what I mean? yeah if you have the adjective ver- version of your name so I was going to use I was going to use the, did I not use it earlier the phrase Lotion Lotion yeah, no, that's oh it. no you didn't use it but no, yeah no, that's kitchen sink dramas and I mean like he near enough created a genre for himself I mean he was I, I, Ken I, Loach, I, by the way, if you don't know what Ken Loach is. Yeah, uh, Ken Loach. I, 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 I don't want to <laughs> simplify Ken Loach's films, but... Loves little boys and birds. <laughs> My work. <laughs> Ken, Ken Loach was, you could almost say, like the British John Cassavetes. He wasn't quite uh, as improvisational, and, and his films were definitely scripted, but he almost single-handedly created what's known as the, the kitchen sink drama, which was the first time that... Uh, British cinema kind of focused on actual working class people in like the early 60s and 70s and stuff like yeah. that and that, that was mad the Kez you know that was massively yeah, fucking yeah, influential yeah. like you know what I mean nobody had seen that before so he's definitely an author but that's song that I actually wanted to go on to is that I don't want people to get confused in the fact that being an author does not mean having just a distinct visual style you can be an author and not have a distinct visual style but it's about having a distinct voice Ken Loach sort of has a visual style but his visual style is the fact that he doesn't have a visual style it's very amateur looking it's very real life looking Ken Loach's uh, authorship you would say is because of the consistent themes and the consistent sort of narratives that he puts out about well back then anyway definitely about working class people in uh, kind of northern England struggling to make a living and just getting on with their life and one of the first people he was ever considered an author by the writers of Care to Cinema was uh, John Renoir Renoir doesn't have really a sort of standout visual style, but he had consistent themes and a consistent worldview that went through all his films of, uh, like, essentially humanism and this sort of, this class war between uh, French society that, that made him stand out and that, that, that kind of showed his voice and made his films different, you know what I mean? So it's it's not necessarily just a visual style, and that's, you know, it's something that we definitely want to reiterate, like. Yeah, just to talk as well, I mean, obviously I think you could see some similarities in his films visually, but yeah, I'd say Paul Thomas Anderson, especially I would consider an auteur, but uh, the entire theme constantly of fathers 
and sons yeah. and surrogate fathers families and in sons. general yeah you know uh, I mean Boogie Nights and then definitely I mean there was even I mean, though you pointed anything the master everything that that for me does. for me the master Boogie Nights and to a certain degree there will be blood is about surrogate families yeah yeah, yeah I mean I mean, even if you look at Punch Drunk Love, which is maybe a bit outside that spectrum, but then, I mean, you do it, the, the romance as well. I mean, you're sort of looking at the sort of a new family, really, essentially, because yeah. he does get this replacement of his sisters that you see in the film. But yeah, I remember uh, reading or watching an interview with him and said, Oh, you've been criticized that you tell the same story every time in your films. And this is along the lines of the early one, the master. He goes, Yeah, it's just a, it's a very interesting story. Yeah. And, you know, even though they're, <laughs> yeah, exactly. they're so different and they're so, you know, I don't know, you could show to some person, they wouldn't, might not even connect. It's the same director, but, but yeah, they definitely do have like that same hook. You're in exactly right, and that shows him in the classic sense of the auteur three as has proven himself as an auteur, and the fact that he is so talented and has such a voice that every single one of his screenplays and films can be about the same topic, but all have a different meaning, can all have a different reflection on society, can all have song that you take away from it that you never took away before. Because I love that when The Master was about to be released, the whole hoo-ha about The Master before it was about the uh, at, at the cinemas was that, oh, it's this, it's 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 trying to have a shot at Scientology and it's all this uh, quasi-religious thing and it's trying to, you know, take all these pot shots. And then it was released, it was essentially about two men from very, very different backgrounds bonding a sort of surrogate brother, some would argue maybe even a surrogate father-son relationship, and that was the most beautiful thing about the film. The way Philip Seymour Hoffman was kind of presented in that film as being like a L. Ron Hubbard sort of character, that wasn't the case, because as soon as you peeled away from that sort of overly charismatic man, he did seem like a nice human, and there was a genuine bond with Joaquin Phoenix's well, character. Well, that oh, there's a very interesting theory about that. Uh, oh, the Ed, the Ego and the Supergo, that mm. the, the three main characters. I love the posters for that as well, where... Uh, there's this poster where it's the three characters of you know uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Joaquin uh, Phoenix, and Amy Adams, but they all tessellate together, mm -hmm. and depending on what way you look at the the picture, one of them seems above the other, or the other two, and it's just it's incredible to look at because if you actually look at the film, it's like there's this constant battle of control where one of them is this like bestial man and sort of like this id that you know I want this now yeah. well then you have this super ego as well which uh, is that nihilism no that's not nihilism no it's like what? a Freudian theory more yeah. than anything isn't it yeah and what I love as well is we're literally just talking about like Batman versus Superman showing too much there is subtle marketing there too. Like, I mean, there is <laughs> it's so subtle you don't even fucking pick up on it oh you wouldn't even know it unless you yeah, see the phone exactly. and then when you look at it you're like alright fuck that's class yeah but I mean even talking earlier on uh when we were talking about Burton Fink and a serious man about the Coen Brothers who are you know seen as auteurs a kind of interesting thing that I've seen recently and I'm, I'm still not quite sure if this promotes the auteur theory or actually takes away from, from the argument for it is that I only recently watched Intolerable Cruelty it was the only Coen Brothers film I'd never seen and the reason I watched it is because I heard it not only was the worst film but it's very strange and the reason that it's very strange is that it's the only film that they never had a hand in writing anything of. I think that they adapted the Lady Killers, or if they didn't adapt it, they at least helped in the process. But they had nothing to do with the script. Every other script of the Coens, and they're notoriously strict about their scripts, and every word has to be said to the exact letter. But this is the first film that they didn't have the script, and they had to use somebody else's. And it doesn't even seem like a Coen Brothers film. It's a very, very jarring watch. You know what I mean? So you're thinking to yourself... Does that prove that they're auteurs because they're such good writers as well as directors that without their writing input, the film is going to collapse on itself and it's not going to be Coen Brothers-esque? Or does it show as a collaborative effort that without a good screenwriter or a poor screenwriter, 
it all falls down. You know what I mean? And that's just one element of a huge filmmaking process. And I'm not quite sure what's what. I'm not quite sure where to well, put together. I, I think if if they didn't write, they they should have been able to go back in and change See, things exactly. about the script so that wasn't if they, working. If they were authors in the classic sense of the theory, they would if that, that script was a piece of shit, their voice still should have shone through. Yet that film very fleetingly only feels like a Coen Brothers film. If they don't, don't have a... If they have no access to changing the script, but they can because, like as 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 we have you as you've said, an auteur is basically just the French word for an author, mm. and the greatest authors in the world, the greatest books that are written in the world. There's lots of themes that you read between the words that sort of access sort of deeper human emotions, yep. and the Coen Brothers are some of the best auteurs, directors that I can think of that actually when you watch one of their films it, it wouldn't make sense the first time you watch it but then you you think about it and they're actually trying to grasp at some things yeah. within like the ego the mind the self that they're trying to analyze a state of mind and some of the characters represent a, a, a certain state of mind and some of them do not or opposing state of states of mind yeah i, I was saw obviously that we brought so up earlier so is it just like a director that goes into more depth. See, well, can, not, can't always be because if you look yeah. at a Wes Anderson film, I mean, uh, I think a lot of his characters, I mean, he's definitely an auteur. I mean, like there's his visual style is an unmistakable. Maybe, maybe, maybe it's his, his visual style is the presents well, yeah. the depth. Well, maybe for the Coens, then yeah, you could say that yeah, that's the way that they look at it. You know, the sort of what would you say? I mean, but obviously they then, do have I mean, a visual like, style. The, the, the argument that you were you were saying to me uh, beforehand, and I think it's exactly right as well, is that the Coen's visual style and you know song that they're very very renowned for is also completely reinforced, or is I wouldn't say has been created, but a lot of that credit goes to Roger Deakins, who's like one of the greatest cinematographers of our time. Without Roger Deakins, the Coen Brothers films wouldn't have looked how they looked. In their early films, they had Roger Deakins, and that kind of informed the visual style for the rest of their films so because I guarantee they learned so much from him. So that Roger Deakins can't be an auteur because he's just a cinematographer. He's just a cinematographer. There's no you can only be There's an no auteur. shame in it, Deakins. <laughs> Don't feel bad. There's Don't let these French bastards take you down. <laughs> <laughs> you can only be an auteur if you're a director, as the as the theory goes. You see, I would say well, as well. Sorry. Go ahead, sorry, Mickey. No, just while we're on the Coens, if you look at things that they've written that they haven't directed mm-hmm. like what was that one Gambit they mm-hmm. wrote with like Cameron Diaz like that was dog shit yeah, it was horrendous, eh? and it's like even some more recent Bridge of Spies they wrote that and it was directed by Spielberg it was actually just Joel or it was actually just Ethan who wrote that it was oh, just really? one, which I found really interesting well people keep on saying it's the Coen brothers no, or well, from what I know anyway it's it's the first time and that's why it stood out to me I think it's the first time that only one of them has done a separate project without the other. Already, oh, Ethan wrote *Bridge of Spies*, but Joel no. Well, no. Involved. Well, one one of them wrote uh, *Fucking Garfield* as well, didn't they? <laughs> <laughs> the Bill Murray thing. Hey. Did you ever hear about this? No. Oh yeah. Uh, Bill Murray accepted uh, the role of Garfield, which is usually derided as his worst role ever. He did the voice of Garfield because uh, <laughs> I think it was our Joel or Ethan Cohen wrote it. But it was a completely different person. He was all, oh, the Coen brothers are in Garfield. I have to do this for <laughs> <one."> like, <laughs> And it turned out. He just uh, said, I just because of Coen's. And then it's a completely different goal. <laughs> yeah. In all fairness, so if Wes Anderson can make the fantastic Mr. Fox as good as it is, picture the Coen's doing Garfield. That would be fucking Incredible, amazing. Yeah. Well, that's the thing I mind hearing about fantastic Mr. Fox at the time. Like it, uh, like a reviewer said, like it's not a Roald Dahl story. It's a Wes Anderson mm-hmm. story. 
because they're so like Wes Anderson just fucking jizzed all over Fantastic Mr. Yeah. Fox. Like it's so Wes Anderson, and that just it's offbeat. Yeah. yeah, but I think it's all one right, of my favorite. Don't the man. <laughs> I think it's it's one of my favorite animations ever because it is I so love unique and it, it it has such as we were saying before that authorial voice. I don't think anybody, and that's I, I think that that kind of sums up the positives of the alter theory is that I don't think that anybody else but Wes Anderson could have done that version of the film. I think if you got a hundred other directors who possibly weren't auteurs in the classic sense of the word and put them to do a fantastic Mr. Fox, then it would have been a very streamlined standard version of the story, which obviously was obvious well received well received enemy, you know what I mean? And you didn't really have to make many alterations to it. And that kinda goes on that thing about, you know, the scene makers, the the Maison scene is that they just have a story and they retell it, but there's no originality or, or sort of stamp on there. Whereas an auteur will take it and go, oh, we could do this and we could enhance it in this way and we could do this and blah, blah, blah. And they, they, they act as a creative force. But as I said before, I don't think that the theory itself actually works. You know, most, like all our theories, there's a, there's a huge gray area there. But I can't take certain elements from it and think, yeah, I understand what they're saying, but then there's there's so much there as well that I, that I disagree with. Okay, we'll move on to recommendation. <laughs> <laughs> That's the least weird I've ever done. <laughs> what accent was that? Like, what was that meant to be? Or do you, do you my, just do just, this? Just, just general it's my It's like accent. Jet free jazz over here. It's Mickey's version of a Texan. He's a spoken word artist. Let him oh, be. You, you want me Texan? Go. Okay, now we're going on to uh, recommendation. <laughs> <laughs> it's even Pretty better. Good, uh, even better than what I expected. Yeah, get some sarsaparilla. <laughs> <laughs> what else do you know about Texas, Mickey? <laughs> Can't seem to find my cowboy hat. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> my cowboy hat. <laughs> I think uh, I'm a cowboy. <laughs> I think I might have left on my horse. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'll go. Dan Kellen. <laughs> oh, excuse me. Uh, <clears throat> I'd like to recommend Goose World. Uh, it's a film starring Thora Birch, Scarlett Johansson, and Steve Buscemi. It's Buscemi. Is it? Ooh, yeah. Not, is it? I heard it from Tom Hanks himself. <laughs> He's next week's guest, by the way, so chill. Yeah. <laughs> uh, not Tom Cruise, isn't it? Ah, uh, it's Tom Cruise. It's both of them. That's how big we are now. <laughs> uh, yeah, Ghost World's based off a comic. And uh, I've seen this guy. It's like a coming-of-age tale of uh, this sort of uh, awkward young teenager, Thora Birch. She's, she's very alternative and cynical and sort of like that... I know mid nineties Daria way. Yeah, yeah, like you know, it was sort of very Daria. It's, it's, yeah. it's, 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 that is an absolutely perfect comparison. Thank you. It's it's live action Daria, yeah. <laughs> and uh, it's sort of like I don't know. I don't want to give away too much of the plot, but essentially, uh, through uh, her being a bit of a misanthrope, she ends up befriending uh, Steve Buscemi, and they end up like this sort of weird relationship where. I don't know, Buscemi seems like this lonely, very, very well-meaning, very nice and actually quite interesting man, but a bit of a shut-in. And uh, Thor Birch's character actually sees, I know, the sort of authenticity like in his actions or like, you know, in his personality and sort of latches on to that. But then you seem to think that maybe this is just her trying not to grow up because yeah. Scarlett Johansson, her best friend and the sort of foil for her, seems to want to move out and go to college and get everything all sorted, you know, being roommates. But uh, Thor Birch's character just doesn't and it's that sort of arrested development and she's trying to be knowingly weird like she's just yeah. trying to be like kind of counterproductive exactly yeah and i mean the the film's very very sarcastic sardonic quite witty uh, i think it's got a great visual style as well and uh use of music in it as well is very very alternative and yeah i know it seems to have like a i don't think there's any film 
that's quite like it. If you know what I mean, it really the even the opening sequence with her, her dancing to her old records, yeah. uh, and it's like the, the sort of old naff, uh, sort of uh, what was it, like a dance sack from like the sixties, not which is like well at this time because it is set in the nineties. But I know it's a sort of alternative thing that even sort of I know it's a good partner piece to maybe like mall rats, mm-hmm. sort of like those slackers nineties. I know they're very different films, very but it's different got, <laughs> yeah, but it's got that sort of same I know off the wall type humor. I mean. Would you agree? That, that, I mean, like, I suppose it's it's that sort of same setting mentality. I do think that Ghost World, and I totally agree with what you're saying, and, and you know, how sardonic it is, and, and how sort of knowingly ironic it is. It's this sort of representation of muddy late 90s kids, and how we're so cynical, and we had this kind of, well, that they had this uh, plethora of information, and they're overeducated, but like, uh, I think the great, uh, the great term I heard for Slackers, the Richard Linklater uh, documentary, is that they're overeducated but uh, underproductive you know what I mean mm. because they've got so much knowledge and I think that uh, Ghost World's almost like a representation of the live action version of it because and it's almost like a precursor to these sort of indie films that we see now about young creative ironic sort of teenagers and it, it sort of bleeds on sort of the hipsterism you know films that you see constantly like you know like uh, not, not Lars and a Real Girl what's the one recently Garden State Garden said you just essentially, <laughs> yeah, just essentially any indie film that you've seen slag off my friend. yeah but I mean like I'm saying any indie film that you've seen in the past 10 years is about a young disenchanted male or female yeah. who likes a certain type of music they're quite indie in their style and their likes and what, what, what do you call the girl the, the pixie dream girl pixie dream girl the pixie dream girl is always there and I think that Ghost World because I think it was released in 1999 was one of the first films they kind of touch on that and, and I think it showed a lot of producers that there was a sort of market fit and that obviously can expand it then. Anyway, keep us waiting. Recommendation. My recommendation is Inside. Inside Out? Great film. <laughs> <laughs> Just Inside. Um, oh, the, the so it's a two, 2007 uh, French film. I don't know the names of the directors. It's fine, keep going. Um, but it's a, a home invasion horror and it's it's actually the first horror that I've seen in a long time that actually scared the shit out of me. Yeah. Uh it's quite believable. Yeah. Um the kind of the main aim of well what I seen the main aim of the the two the two directors they co wrote it, I think. Um usually most home invasions are like men, right? Yeah. The bad guy's always a man. Um, so in this one it's not, it's a woman. Mm-hmm. And then there's the added tension of the woman inside the house is pregnant. Mm-hmm. And the next day she's got her cesarean section planned. So she's like, she's about to pop. And it's just, it's hard. It's, it's good. I recommend <laughs> it. They're actually, um, they're making a remake at the minute. It's just been announced this year. A Hollywood remake. So hopefully they don't, it up. Is it going to be called Inside again? <laughs> Non-confirmed. Unconfirmed. <laughs> and I just meant Inside, not Inside again. Because <laughs> <laughs> oh! that's obviously the sequel. They're going to steal that. Up. <laughs> inside <laughs> the sequel. <laughs> it's just they, they've kidnapped yeah. the kid <laughs> like that was born from inside that Inside the sequel, locked out. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Dominic Fedden. Recommendation. Did you did you just attempt my accent there? I, th- I, uh, I think I did, yeah. I think you did. 
My my recommendation is wild. Mm. Reese Witherspoon's I'm Reese Reese Witherspoon. I'm not sure who the director is. Do you know the director? I can't remember the name. Uh, it was a great. Obviously, film. not not her, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I would say very Zing. much not her, Shan. So much could, so that you don't know their name. Continue. It, it was such a good film for me that I watched it twice in a matter of days. Mm. My God. Um, it's taken from a book. Uh, this woman, she basically her life falls apart. And there's a few, few bad episodes in her life, and it sort of unravels. It spirals downwards, and you begin the film with her. She starts the Pacific Crest Trail, so yeah. from the border of Mexico and America, and I don't know, Calif- California. So the Mojave Desert in California. She goes all the way, all the way up the west coast to the border of Oregon and Washington. Now I was particularly, the only reason I watched the film was because I'm quite interested in going up to the northwest corner of North America. You mean like Seattle, Washington? Yeah, that's, that, that's the, the Cascadia region. Just two seconds, the director is Jean-Marc Valley. Watch it uh, Dallas Buyers Club. Yeah. And is, is doing the upcoming film Demolition with Jakey G. Boom. There we go. So, auteur in the making. Yeah, is it? Uh, um, oh, for fuck's sake. <laughs> <laughs> Continue. It's, it's I, I found it really interesting film. This, this woman, she's, she, it comes back to flashbacks during her life. She starts at this point and there's a few flashbacks that bring you round to why she's attempting walking what is essentially a thousand mile hike. And she's doing it on her own. She's doing it through the 90s. And along the way, there's there's a lot of themes of her meeting. She's on her own and she's meeting men. And of course, American society is a whole lot more uh, aggressive and quite violent than even though we're in Northern Ireland. It's still, you know, there's 355 mass shootings in America alone this year. Yeah. It's got a very violent society. And she's doing this on her own. She meets a lot of uh, male characters along the way. And they're not major characters. But the, the theme is like how this woman will travel on her own up to the border and be worried that she's going to get attacked mm-hmm. and, uh, sin- you know, either creepy men or sinister. Do they play up that? Do they play up the fact that there's this a kind of constant threat that a the, woman yes, on her own? Yes. The, well, no, that's the theme. She's constantly worried about that because she's on her own. Because I always seen from the market material that it was supposed to be like a sort of a find yourself film. Yes, yeah. it, it is. It is a find yourself because her life's fallen apart. But as you go through the flashbacks, there's links to the themes of one of the reasons her life fell apart because she had a strong, like her mother dies. Mm. So there's a strong sort of female role model for her. She loses. And then she kind of, now, I guess the book was, excuse me, written in the 90s. So she's she's applying herself to maybe the standards of a woman in the 90s, which I think nowadays would, it wouldn't be so, you know, the gender fucking definitions wouldn't be so fucking hard. Yeah. Be more vague and blurred Mm. as Mm. it is naturally. And, um, I, I, I just really liked this exploration of her character and an exploration of what gender is for this woman in this particular time frame. My recommendation is Superheroes. It's a documentary. I think it was actually just like a HBO documentary. But it's about 
these real life superheroes that kind of beat about their streets like it's all set in america so it's just different parts of america these people actually dress up in costumes and go kind of patrol the streets and it's it's there's it's a really funny film <laughs> <laughs> no because I, I i didn't want to say it's fun it's funny because there there are some moments in it where like people have like gone through some stuff and this is why they're doing this now like there's actually there's there's a team of superheroes in it at one point where uh like what one of them doesn't wear a mask and he says that's because he he was like uh he was like bullied and like he's been like uh, he's had trauma over just because he's a homosexual and so he doesn't feel like he should wear a mask because he's putting himself out there kind of thing and it's it's like there's there's some kind of nice stories in that about how these people kind of end up basically just going out in the streets in costumes and trying to kind of make their area better but then there's boys like I can't mind his superhero name but he's just <laughs> <laughs> he's just drinking cans of beer <laughs> saying fighting crimes thirsty work <laughs> and it comes back to him a few times and he's all ne- I, I never over drank I never over drank every time he's a new can he's always cracking up on a new can and it's just there's it, there's so much kind of diversity in the film of just these different people and why they do it and there's some cracker ones like your boy with the fucking cans and, all. and so it's it can be really funny but there are some kind of poignant moments of like what actually makes a person go- like it kind of relates back to what I watched super like that man was mentally ill and went mental and just killed people for no reason <laughs> basically but no, like nobody does that in this. I don't think. <laughs> Please tell that boy you're referring to. He's called Can Man. <laughs> I really want to be called Can Man. I think he might be. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's a it's a really interesting uh, documentary. You'll laugh, you'll cry, you'll have a great time. Sean Coyle. Uh my recommendation is uh touching on the film that I talked about for what I watched this week. It's an R. Joe Schwanberg one. It is called Drinking Buddies. It's actually probably more well known than uh, Happy Christmas, which I talked about earlier on. Essentially, it's uh, Olivia Wilde. It is the guy from New Girl. Joe Johnson. Joe Johnson. Is I... it Joe Johnson? John Johnson. John no, that's Johnson. a ridiculous name. I'm not quite sure. Joe Johnson. <laughs> even on, I, I kind of, and I kind of. Yeah, you don't like him. Yeah, but that's what I'm saying. Like this, on a small level, there is someone else in film that looks exactly like him. I've bought this. Oscar Isaac. No, yeah. no, it's not. And you've said that before, and it's not. There is somebody. They else. look like each other. I'm not quite sure it is, but the main crux of this is that I hated him before watching that film, and after that film, I kind of fell in love with him a bit. It is the very same sort of uh, aesthetic setup. It is a mumblecore film, although I think it, it definitely had a bit of a higher budget than Happy Christmas or. I know, or, like I mind that, like actually coming out in cinemas yeah. and stuff like like I it was. It, it was would actually proper. maybe be a stretch. To, well, it is. I think it'd be a stretch to call it a mumblecore film because it's so highly produced. It has mumblecore elements. Elements yeah, or I think, I think that it, it would kind of go away from being a mumblecore film because it's so highly produced and a wee bit stylized and it maybe fits more under this another term but like a dramedy. Uh, it does maintain a lot of fucking tropes of the mumblecore genre and the fact that it is near enough completely improvised and it's kind of a, a sort of snapshot or a reflection on normal life. Essentially what the storyline is, is uh, Olivia Wilde is uh, going out with this fella. Uh, then you've got, as a John, Jack Johnson, what is this? Joe Johnson. Joe Johnson. Joe Johnson is going out with Anna Kendrick, who seems to be a very favourite of Joe Swanberg because he keeps casting her. Uh, she's a favourite of yours, though. Oh, she is indeed. <laughs> but uh, they both are in very happy relationships, but 
Joe Johnson's character and Olivia Wilde's character are best friends, but you know for a fact that even though they're in relationships, they're really into each other and they kind of want to leave their significant dollars to be Sorry, with each other. It's Jake Johnson. Jake Johnson. Well, there you go. Joe Johnson directed Captain America: The First Avenger. There we go. Definitely <laughs> not <him>. <laughs> <laughs> But you can kind of tell. Well, not kind of tell, but they're definitely wanting to go with each other. They're definitely wanting. Uh, relieve themselves of these you know really good relationships they have and I just I found even just the, the central narrative of the film really interesting because we all know somebody or we've all been in a position where maybe we're going out with somebody be it a very serious relationship or be it someone that's just off a cup it just started and you meet somebody else or you have a really really good friend who you, you may possibly want to go out with there's been so many people in that position and it's such an awkward social situation to be in and it's just handled so well. And again, it's the whole thing about Joe Swanberg being, I think, one of the best observationalists that there is. Happy Christmas. He showed, I think he shows it even more in, in Drinking Buddies. The, the whole film is just about these two people trying to get together. And the weird thing is, is that if you were watching a rom-com and there was these two people trying to get together in different relationships, it would almost certainly be that their significant girlfriend or their, or their boyfriend was an absolute dickhead. And it would give you a reason to not like that person and it would give you a reason then for you to want them to be together but obviously rom-coms aren't real life and this is you know one of the best representations of real life you'll get the two spouses that they have seem like the nicest people of all time <laughs> you know what i mean but and not not like sickly nice just real normal easy going people nice. genuine people and that's what makes it so kind of cloying that's what kind of pulls your heartstrings because you've seen this situation in real life so many times where somebody is really good for somebody else, but one of the spouses once you saw him more, they're, they're more attracted to someone else. You, you know what I mean? You've either observed it or you've been in it. Exactly. In both situations. And Possibly that's even in a podcast tent, right? <laughs> <laughs> Maggie, you know I want to leave my missus for you. Like. How's, it, how's it going, Jan? <laughs> <laughs> but I just think that it, it's sort of a weird thing. It is those subtle, everyday observations of the films of Jules Swanberg that I've seen they just had home so much because it's just stuff that you know and it's like watching your life recreated or watching somebody that you know's life recreated through actors and it just hats home way more than any other sort of film genre or production that, I, that I've seen and it's only until recently that I've started watching mumblecore stuff I wouldn't quite say that's mumblecore I think it's just a very well produced dramedy on top of that too like Happy Christmas like I talked about earlier on Olivia sorry, uh, Olivia Wilde and Jake Johnson their chemistry is unbelievable you could actually be sold that they are the best friends the best life partners you've ever seen in your life sometimes you would actually maybe even take a step back and think am i even watching two actors because they're so good with each other on it and that's what makes you scream out that you want them to be together not spoiling that what happens but uh, i excellent show definitely watch it so it's basically your life with more attractive people <laughs> exactly <laughs> i'm surrounded by attractive people here Brenda Pound. I know, but it's you though. Or me? Oh, no, no, I know. <laughs> I'm, I'm the troll of the tent. <laughs> Why are you joking, Chan? You, you could live under like a really class bridge like Golden Gate Bridge. That's what I'm saying. Like, <laughs> that's why I brought that up right now. <laughs> no Craig Avon Bridge. Nah, fuck you. At least the foil bridge. <laughs> I've got, yes. got a reservation at Brooklyn Bridge like now. <laughs> You've got a space spare for me down there. 
Okay, and we'll wrap it up there, folks. And if you'd like to get in contact with us, you can find us on Facebook, Let's Talk More Movies Podcast. You can find us on Twitter, at Talk More Movies. And you can also email us, Let's Talk More Movies at gmail.com. Just like Harry Campion did. And also, she asked us to say, in the next podcast, tell Patty Doran he's pure last Wednesday. Check out. You're pure last Wednesday, Patty Doran. Off you fuck, Patty Doran. <laughs> <laughs> Be about extra. Um, <laughs> so yeah, if you if you want to suggest some topics, weigh in some of our topics, what bridge do you think Shan should live under? <laughs> Please oh. say Golden Gate. <laughs> also, if you want to send some messages of support for Colm Heron, um, he'll, he'll see them. I'm sure they'll su- support him through this difficult time. You can like, subscribe, and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and also on Acast, where you can get interactive show notes and links. Best place to listen to us. I have been your host, Michael Breslin. Shan has been Shan Cole. Hey, yay! Dan Cole has been Dan Cole. Hello. Dominic Tyler. Thank you very much. Kiva Sweeney. Bye. Episode 32, baby! Thank you so much for listening. Goodbye. listened to last week's podcast this morning and I weeped when I fought back on Colm's attempt at Tom Waits Uh. weeped while pulling compacted shit out of a horse's tail with my bare hands (laughs) (laughs) get well soon Colm love you love you Colm but beautiful and tragic That's true. (laughs) (laughs) Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.